so this is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. We're in season one. This is episode twenty, and uh, we're doing an interview today with Chris Morrow, who um, who has been a professional surfer, the editor of Surfer Magazine. He's worked with the WSL. He's kind of like the done everything you can possibly do in the world of surfing, from my perspective, which is a very humble perspective. But Chris, welcome to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting <laughs> yeah. me. This is so awesome. Cheers, by the way. We're drinking yeah. some uh, Flesian Dayglow IPAs that were a gift from Gabe Sullivan. Curious Gabe. Curious Gabe. Who Courtesy, <laughs> Curious Gabe. Who man. You, you worked he with. He was uh, the... Uh, the most steady contributor I ever had. It was, yeah, <laughs> how, how many years was Gabe uh, with... Uh, I think he's... I don't know if he's still there or not. He might still be. But, you know, it was funny because um, there was... Th- there's always people internally on the staff who are just like, oh, this thing run its course. And we do reader surveys yeah. and just to test it. And Curious Gabe was off the charts, you know? And so it was like, no, we're not killing this. This thing's awesome. Uh, he, and, and, I mean, I remember growing up in... So, I mean, I grew up in Michigan surfing on the Great Lakes and uh, was a huge fan. I mean, Surfer Magazine was what kept us alive out there because, <laughs> you know, one, we don't get that great of waves. Mm-hmm. And when we do get them, we're stoked out of our minds for things you typically wouldn't even surf here in California. Um, but then, you know, getting this, getting Surfer Magazine gave us like, it's like, in a way, it's kind of like porn for surfers where it allows you to kind of mind surf these waves that you'll probably never see, or at least in my at that time in my life, I thought I would never get to Pipeline or never get to right. a lot of these cool places that you guys were featuring. Um, so the first time I think we met was around Unsalted, wasn't it? Yeah. It was somewhere... Were you there during when I came out to visit for Unsalted? No, okay. I wasn't. It, was, it must have been... Yeah. There was uh, Vince Dewar, a couple of those guys in Grand Haven. So it was pretty funny because um, I, in 2000, I went out on a road trip. I did a cross-country road trip just by myself. Yeah. And and when I got, I forget where I was. I think I was somewhere in northern Nebraska or something. (laughs) And I got a call from these guys who had done a story on at some point in time. And they're like, hey, man, if you can get here, there's going to be waves, you know? So I just bolted right and just raced up there just because i wanted to check it out it's like and a 10 12 hour drive yeah from there it was it was that was a big sprint i remember and uh but i got there and it was so unique you know the the best thing of that where did you you surfed in lake superior right on that one no no i went to i was on lake michigan lake so michigan, i just okay. just outside grand haven they're just okay. like hey just come you know there's waves the water's good you know that's where i grew up with since so, yeah so it was it was um and just that whole crew, you know, yeah. those guys are so on it. And it was, it reminded me a lot of Endless Summer when the South Africa segment, when they all surf together, right. you know, everybody travels in like a caravan, like, right. okay, let's all go. And, you know, which is just the polar opposite of the California say, experience, right? I've yeah. lived in California longer than anywhere. Yeah. And like, with the exception of Northern California, where you are actually looking for people in the water. Yes, exactly. You know, down here, you're... You, you know, you, people get really pissed if you bring a bunch of guys someplace. Yep. It's not cool to, you know, bring people to a spot that isn't, you yeah. know. I paddled out at Uppers one time, and there was a guy in, like, a section of Uppers where apparently he thought he was by himself, although it's, I'm like, you're you're at Uppers, man. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. there's a million dudes out here. Yeah. And he got, su- I didn't even see him. Like, he had ridden a wave, and I was paddled out to kind of this gap where he was. And he started yelling at me for paddling out, you know, where he was sitting, and I'm like, are you fucking kidding? I mean, Dude. excuse my friend, yeah. but are you, are you kidding me? Like, this, <laughs> it's uppers, man. Yeah, well. People are funny that way. It's funny because the more you travel, um, and sadly, the more you realize 
California's number one export is assholes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. There's a reason they were beating up Howleys in Hawaii. It wasn't because they were just these friendly Californians. Uh, You know, we we always have a tendency to move somewhere and then claim instant local status. Right. right. So it's like, you know, whether it's Oregon or Vancouver Island or whatever. And even, you know, it's just you name it. And um, yeah, that drives me nuts. And so, you know, that's again why it was so refreshing to be somewhere where it's just like that's so the antithesis of the vibe and you know i think honestly the great lake surfers what i have so much respect for them because they're on it man you know the swells only last four hours Hours, so they have to be they have to be watching the weather patterns and they understand them so well so they get it you know they get what it's all about yeah and you know i think a lot of my beef sometimes with our own kind here is you know surfing can be a really selfish pursuit and right. it can destroy you right. if you let it. You know, it's just like anything else, you know, any kind of addiction kind of thing. And, and you know, if you're using it in a positive way, it's the best thing ever. But there are times and you see, you know, there are grumpy people in the water and they're right. not happy human beings. And they, I think they're just using that, that force wrong. Right. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, when you see guys who want to fight or shout or, I, I mean, granted, you know, here in Laguna, there's, you know, Occasionally, you have to tune somebody yeah. up if, if they're just doing it wrong. But right. you know, but you try and do it generously and without you know without malice. Yeah. But the uh, you know because there there does need to be a little structure at a reef break. Yeah, there's regulation. A there's a hierarchy that people have to understand. There's always a lot of new people coming into the sport. And, right. You know, there's obviously more lineups that are more forgiving than others. You go to San Onofre and you cut somebody off on accident, no you're going to be forgiven. Right, you know right. I mean? But you do that at the wrong spot. Right. And, you know, somebody's <laughs> going to get in your face. And and so it's no different than, you know, you make the wrong move at Trader Joe's or something in front of the wrong lady. Or <laughs> catch somebody in a bad day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At the wrong time. I had this thing. I was at... I was at Santa one day and there was I was dropping on this wave and this guy drops in on me way down the wave and he was on this huge board I wasn't looking at him like an 11 foot board and he kind of drops down and his board kind of hits me in the shins so I go to push his board off my shins I wasn't trying to push him off the board or anything and he grabs me he's like two of us can do that and we ended up in the water and I pop up and I was like I was just like what the what the fuck man like you know this is sano this isn't salt creek like what and i look at it skip fry and i mean you know it wasn't his fault he's he was the nicest guy like he he paddled over late he was like i'm sorry you know i was misunderstood or whatever and we was we had a it was a really sweet man but but i was like i was like one i was like okay why you know i don't understand what's going on here but then two like um what's cool about surfing is you can be in the water on any given day with one of the legends of the sport mm-hmm. who is one of the nicest guys and you yep. know of course people can misunderstand things yeah um and uh and i think his wife was out with him you know donna yeah. donna yeah and they're really cool people yeah and then like um i was talking to a buddy of mine who's a really great golfer and he said you know the thing you never see in golf is you know you never get to go golf with tiger woods you never go get to golf with you know a top pro or t- typically you don't where in surfing, any place, you, if you're at the right place at the right day, you're going to bump into people who are really well-known, really well-respected. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, you know, to that point, you know, extending that out even more, one of my favorite columns when I was at Surfer Magazine was um, the one just called People Who Surf. And it was in right. the back, and it was the everyman column. I, I wrote some of those for Steve Hawk. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. awesome. Yeah. And, and so 
Um, that was how I got my job. Was I wrote one for Steve Hawk? Oh, oh did on, you? Yeah, on yeah. Damon Barry Hill. Who oh, cool. oh, really? Grew up here, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. In Laguna, and he he hit a homer in the World Series. His and, brother owns the house two yeah, doors down. Clay. Yeah, Clay. Clay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the the fascinating thing to me about surfing is, is is that you just never know who's sitting next to you in the lineup. Right. And what the magazine taught me, you know, just doing my time there and spending 10 years interviewing all these people and, and is just what kind of diversity you see in the lineup. You know, you could be sitting next to literally a Nobel Prize winner, right. a, a space shuttle pilot. It's, it's not just other pro surfers. Athlete. There's yeah. all kinds of yeah. people on the water. Or, um, or some guy who just got out of prison for 10 years, you know what I mean? And, and <laughs> yeah. drug dealers and stuff. And, <laughs> li- and they're talking to each other like right. equals in right. the lineup, you know? And, and, and it's just so unique in that way. You don't, you know, there aren't that many pursuits where you see that kind of camaraderie right. and that kind of level playing field in the water where people just look at each other like human beings. Their, their, their on-land status immediately goes away. Right. Um, it's the great that, equalizer. Yeah. Totally. It's the great equalizer. And that's why it's such a great place to be, you know, when you pick the right lineups and all that kind of stuff. And again, you got to know what you're getting into to get the most of it, but... Um, if you know what to look for, it's amazing. So how did you, I mean, part of what this, the Kick Aspirational podcast is kind of about helping people break through barriers in their life, creating the life they want. Mm-hmm. And when you had reached out to me recently and said, hey, what are you using for your podcast? And yeah. just, I said, you want to come over? I'll show you and let's do, let's do an interview. Exactly. Because you've always had, I mean, one, you've, you've been a pro surfer, you've been at Surfing Maga- Surfer Magazine, which was, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a surfer who reads... Yeah. Or even if you don't read, but especially if you read, especially during your years and the Steve Hawk years. Right. I mean, there's a lot of great, yeah. um, they had a lot of great editors, but I think you guys had, in my, in my mind, you know, the great years at surfing where the, the written word was actually pretty important. Um, there's some other editors who were Yeah, the it was same just, way. it mattered, you yeah. know, like it, the magazine meant something. To your point, it was like it came in the magazine. Media wasn't so um, just ubiquitous. Right. I mean, the, the reason it meant so much to you in, Grand Haven or, or, you know, or it, when you were in Michigan, it was like, it was so hard to find a picture of surfing. Right. Right. And or, you know, or that, a well-written story about it. Yeah. And so that's how it was here, believe it or not, growing up. I mean, I grew up in Laguna and, you know, the, California at the time when I was growing up, it was sort of this like this, the surf community had gone super far underground. Right. Um, this is the 70s. The 70s, you know, late 70s. And, and Black you know, suits, Laguna was, yeah. it was kind of gnarly. You know, you had the whole brotherhood of eternal love. There was major drug scene and everything. My Our parents didn't want us to surf. Right. You know, they were well, like, and, whoa, because they knew what was going on. And the guys on the, I mean, the guys who were monitoring, you know, kind of regulating the reefs at that time. Yeah. Was a little heavier attitude back then. Oh, well, localism. So, you know, surfing had gone so anti-establishment in the wake of Vietnam and and and, and everything, and it really kind of exposed this kind of ugly underbelly. And, you know, a lot of things, I've written about this too, but what happened was, on the one hand, you had surfboard technology improve so much that when surfers learned to ride the tube... Right. Which was kind of the Jerry Lopez thing, early 71, Sean really, Thompson, you know, yeah. and, and, and you saw all these surf movies come out and guys are riding pipeline. All of a sudden, every single wave that barreled was on lockdown. Right. Locals, like just like, you know, that's when localism reigned. And so, you know, Laguna is not exactly the barrel riding it's, it's capital, a, but right. it has its little moments, you know. And so every little novelty wave 
had and it is all reprints, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but you know, you go to places like Oxnard, and that Oxnard was like it was off limits for years yeah, right. if you were an outsider. And it Palos was Verdes, yeah, Palos Verdes. Yeah. So localism was, you know, surfing went super tribal, and yeah. it's hard for people to relate to it now because. You know, we move around pretty freely between crews and up and down the coast and stuff like that. Yeah. But that was that was not the case in, in the seventies. You know, what was so interesting and, and contests were really, really shunned, you know, like while like things this. were happening in Australia and Hawaii, California was just like super anti establishment, really kinda just like uh, like again, just tribal, stay surf where you live, yeah, do your thing, you know, and and it wasn't until kind of the late 70s, early 80s when you saw these little cracks in the system because kids my age at the time were like kind of tired of the repression. It was a pretty repressive little scene. Yeah. And we would see, you know, the magazines at that time kind of were were pointing to Hawaii and Australia and all the all the guys who we looked up to were didn't they weren't from here. Right, right. You know what I mean? right, they, were, right. they were from Australia or they were from Hawaii and all that. And the they bus, were larger than life. You know, they the were busting down the door. Yeah, yeah, the busting down the door guys. And and when the busting down the door guys kinda came this way and the really origins of the surf industry were being born PT with like, and Kanga like and those Quicksilver guys. Yeah. and those kinds of start companies starting up and um you had this nascent little tribe of, of outsiders coming in trying to wake us up and the cracks started to show first, like in San Clemente and then in Newport, and those guys kind of got inroads and grew some fans. And so it was like, there's a great article. If you ever get a chance, it's hard to find it now. But um, John Witzig, um, incredible Australian I'm writing writer, this down. Yeah, um, he wrote an article in 1980 for Surfer Magazine. It was a three-part series. It was called Tropica Cancer, and it was his trip up the California coast, <laughs> and it was amazing nobody's nailed the california scene um like he did you know just he's culturally a great, he's, a, he's a fantastic writer oh too. Yeah. just yeah, yeah. He cannot and and what's amazing about it is you go back and we're talking gosh almost 40 years ago now um and a lot of it still rings true like the the the, the way he nailed la jolla and newport and san clemente and because the cultures are really Cruz, unique, right? All, each of them have their own unique culture, yeah. And he just nailed them, and and it was it was kind of like it was kind of like a Tocqueville version for the surf community, you How know, cool. like a de Tocqueville of like instead of going across the area, but he just nailed what the whole California surf scene was, and it is so different, and it remains that way. Yeah, and because you, um, you, you capture a point in time and, and a point in that surf culture, but that's also. You know what's been going on since then is mm-hmm. still building on that foundation largely. If you go to Wind and Sea or you yeah. go to, you know, Sano or you go to Doheny or you come to Laguna or you go to Newport, you're going to find a lot of the same feelings that he's probably written. Oh yeah, on Tropical yeah. Cancer. The underlying culture of each of those communities is is still there. Right. Um, you know, it's been surfing as a whole if you look at the last 40 years it's gone through this giant boom and bust in a way right not necessarily surfing riding going out and riding waves but the industry the itself industry, it grew yeah. way beyond what it was you know right you know when you get to disneyland and there's somebody standing in front of you in line wearing a quicksilver shirt and they've never surfed in their life quicksilver you know, and billabong in particular yeah, right like, yeah yeah and you, you you know it's like okay we we've we've peaked you know <laughs> <laughs> if it's at jc penny maybe it's not for us anymore yeah. And so, you know, it, it, it certainly got to that point. And, and now 
it is what it is. You know, there's more people in the lineup than there's ever been. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, there were huge crowds in the 80s. It's not to say it wasn't crowded then, you well, know? Well, you were, so you started surfing here in Laguna. Yeah. Did your parents get you help you get your no, first board? So, How'd you get well, your first board? I mean, um, I was number five of six kids. Okay. And, you know, I, I grew up in South Laguna, so Three Arch Bay, and, and there was just kids all over the beach. And back wow. then, people Rough used neighborhoods. to just, yeah, they, just, <laughs> no they stashed their boards in the bushes. Oh, wow. You know, it was like there was a bamboo forest down there and yeah. everything. And, and so it was a, a tight-knit little community down there. And I remember the first time I ever stood on a board, it was just a, a neighborhood guy. He just said, yeah, go borrow my board, man. Take it out. You know, and... Oh, cool. um, Wade Binley, he's still around. The guy's oh, yeah. six years old. He's, he's in incredible shape. He's good friends with Clay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, he let me borrow his board. And then after that, um, there was this little hippie couple who were renting a studio next door to my parents' house. And they were getting married. And they're like, hey, we're getting married. We need money for our wedding. Do you want to buy my board for 25 bucks? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Went up to my, I was like, told my parents my birthday was coming up. I was turning 10. I'm like, dad, this is what I do. <laughs> this is the only thing I want. And then it was on. And what, then. That, what, so, so what was the board? It was, you know, it was funny because um, Mike Parsons was kind of like the little hero of our neighborhood. And he used to tease me because he's like, that thing was hollow. It was like a pop-out or something. It was some little single fin California free spirit. Had like the sharpest fin I've ever seen. Um, but it was a single fin. It was like a little single fin yeah, 6.0. Yeah. And, and which for the time board. was, yeah. you know, was what it was. We're talking like 78 here. And, um, and um, you know, the three arch has its moments. It's it's a horrible wave, but it's like anywhere. It has its days where it looks there, good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, you can. And, and, and there was... I don't know if it was just the timing or if it's just I was young and stupid, but you know there was some magic moments down there. And and what was funny was uh, Mike was he's three or four years older than me. Okay, he had the best job in the world, in my opinion, which was he had the beach cleanup job, which he got to drive a dune buggy on that beach. <laughs> and How old was he? He was like twelve. <laughs> oh, I was so ten. Stoked. No, he was about thirteen or fourteen, and oh, he got yeah. to drive this dune buggy around and pick up all the trash bags and then haul them. And so he had a, he had a ride. So he had a killer, and I was just like, all I wanted to do was dr- drive that thing. And um, <laughs> I remember I came down one day with my board, and he'd been watching me because he was a few years older. He's like, you know, he would always kind of get me pointers and stuff and i was like dude can i drive that thing and he's like if you help me with the trash i'll i'll do it (laughs) i ended up working for him like all summer you know just like hauling trash bags up those stairs oh awesome and um and he would pay me in milkshakes you know he would just be like i'll make you a milkshake when we get home and then he would (laughs) would make you a milkshake he would pay me in 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 his whole thing was like i will take you to trestles if you help me and you gotta understand for a kid who's 10, 12, 11 years old in, in Laguna, never surfed anything that wasn't a closeout, yeah. Trestles was like Indo. Right. Like it might as well have been the mentalized. Big open know? faces, super yeah. fun waves. And yeah. so he would be like, I'll get you down there and we'll go. And so, you know, long story short, that was sort of a start of a friendship that lasted, you know, a lifetime really. But um, we were nickname? kind of in, in overdrive. But he used to just be like, hey, be at my house at 4.30. Yeah. And, you know, don't wake me up. You have to sit on the front porch, wait for the light to go on, because you can't wake my parents up. My dad will lose it, you know? And I would just be freezing out there, you know, just like on his porch and waiting for the light to go on. And because um, he was, and he, you know, what's crazy about Mike is that um, he's a very successful coach in um, 
some of the women like Lakey Peterson and some right. of the rookies and stuff. He still is on it and dedicated today at 53 or something um, as he was back then. Like he has never not stopped. He's just, he, he's never stopped, slowed down at all. He's He's been one of those guys who's just up at dawn every day. And he, I mean, yeah. we, 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 it wasn't like, it would be on the beach at first light. Wow. That's how he is, you know? Yeah. And he's never, he, he's been like that. He's All not, the time. He's not messing around. No, no, wasn't. And so when we started going to contests and stuff, you know, the amateur stuff with, you know, this is back, Brandy Faber and all these Laguna guys started coming with us in later years. But like, um, you know, he would get really, really pissed if there was anybody warming up before him in the water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was just like, I have to be the first guy out. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah. you know, it was, it was, so, so, so it Booth, was cool. so Booth. Well, Booth's about our Booth, age. Boothy yeah. is a year younger than me. You're younger than you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost 50. Yeah, I'm you're, 50. You're 50. Yep. Okay, so we're the same, roughly the same yep. age. And uh, so Brandy's a couple years younger than us, right? Mm-hmm. And then Sly yep. Dog's a little younger than yeah, that. Yeah, Sly Dog's a little crew. younger, yep. And, so, yeah, Brandy yeah. was kind of the younger demo for me. Um, Sly Dog, I... He's hilarious. I mean, good God. <laughs> Him and Frog. <laughs> like but, Peter Pan. But yeah. I was already kind of out... And graduated from the NSSA by the time he he, he started kind of yeah. doing his thing. Um, was Tristram it, in the same crew, or was he? I don't. You know, I didn't know Tristram until he got older. Just okay. because I at the other the other thing too, I was a South Laguna guy. Yeah, and well, so like talking yeah. tribes again. You know, it was like I. <laughs> what do, I, we, we don't even know what people do down there. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like. What? But Faber, it was funny because for a few years he would come down and I would see him out there. At, at Three Arch, there, he had a, a friend, Robert Bartlett. And so he did his time at Three Arch. He did, and all those guys have had their day. And it was funny. Before, I, when I started working at Surfer, I was renting a studio right at Rock Pile. So oh, for wow. a year or so, it was like, everybody was like, what are you doing out here? Exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say that, you know, um, like James Priver and Jamo is a good, yeah. good buddy of mine. And, you know, he's always at Agate. And yeah. I surf Brooks a lot, which you can see from Agate. Yeah. Or you can see Rockpile from there. And what I love doing is just randomly paddling out at one of these spots. And you know everybody who's surfing there. Yeah. And they literally, everyone would be like, dude, what are you doing here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I, I, can, I live in Laguna. I'm going to yeah. surf this wave today. No, I know. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's hilarious. Well, it, and it's so funny because honestly, the last month, I just got a new longboard. It's um, my first one in like 10 years. I And uh, so I was down at Santa a lot. And what's so funny about that whole scene down there is you go every 50 yards in the parking lot, it's a different crew. Oh, no, and they have their, their place they park. It's and if like, you, yeah. if you slip in, they, and, you know, they're like, who are and you? And every yeah. little peak has got its own crew. Oh, and it it's just, totally. yeah. and so, you know, my my upbringing was, was one in that, you know, Three Arch Bay, what was interesting for um, Parsons and myself the 83 El Nino winter really screwed up the bottom at three arch. And oh, wow. so we had to go mobile. Oh, wow. And so we kind of really um, melded in with the San Clemente crew. You know, we were kind of, I had my, it was, in, it was interesting because my best friends, um, my best friend, my mom, uh, his mom worked for my dad. So she was like my dad's head nurse. So I had an in at T street and, okay. um, and I hung out down there and, and I was like, you know, it's a, mushy burgery crappy little way but in the 80s the boards were thick and wide yeah. and pretty flowy so you could get going on those things and there was a good little crew there my friend lived right down the street from matt archibald and nobody knew who matt was and i was telling mike i was just like hey you got to see this kid yeah he's 
freaking unbelievable. We got to get into some contests, you yeah. know, because he hadn't even surfed any contests or anything. Wow. And so we actually um, were the ones who started dragging Archie to NSSA contests and stuff his like that. His dad's Tom, got, right? Got his rolling. Yeah, Tom. But Tom wasn't really around because his parents had divorced. So okay. it was his mom, Nina, okay. um, who lived up the street. And Tom lives here in Laguna. Yeah, Tom's, Tom's around here somewhere. Yeah. And um, I've seen him a handful of times, but it was like, it, you know, back then he yeah. was just Misto Man. Yeah, like, yeah, we yeah. didn't know where he was. And and um, so Matt was, I mean, he was a pretty wild child, you know. Sure. And um, was Christian Fletcher cruising with him a lot back he, then? No, I mean, they didn't really, they didn't really roll together. Christian lived down by Pochi, kind of. Okay. Um, and so he was, he was down on that other side of town. Yeah. Um, it wasn't really till later when they started hooking up. I think really when they clicked was when they were on town and country together and, and right. that kind of thing. But, you know, Matt spiritually was kind of the the ringleader of that whole scene. Yeah. Um, you know. Getting into trouble. Getting into trouble. And, and I mean. And just a really aggressive surf stop. I mean, that's what put Yeah, I mean, it, it yeah. was really. I mean, the funniest thing was I remember just being in shock and awe watching him skateboard because we were my friend and i were doing this thing and i took he, matt came over to our house in three arch and there was this little driveway across the street from my parents house that it's shaped like a perfect wave and i had this little routine i go yeah matt check this out and he's like <laughs> you're just and he's it. just like and i'm like doing my little thing and he just, just like looks at me and shakes his head and he goes and kicks up to the top of the street and gets full speed and just does this full giant power sliding guard <laughs> and i just Looked at my friend, just like, what did he just do? <laughs> it's you like Dogtown's evil. Yeah, just, uh, yeah. yeah, and it was like, right then, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's crazy. And um, he, you know, he was such a funny guy, and he, he's amazing. He obviously got into a lot of trouble um, because, you know, he he got the industry was new back then there were no chaperones they were getting he was 16 there were no boundaries right dropping out i mean yeah it's just not like you see today the parents didn't go travel with you you just i mean he was 16 years old you got thrown to the wolves but i also think late you know coming out of vietnam so we're in sarah and i just watched the whole vietnam series the ken burns thing Mm -hmm. you know i remember in the late 70s when i was like in grade school you know about going to middle school there was there were just drugs everywhere even in michigan and i'm sure it was is the same here yeah and nobody really had you know there weren't a lot of people putting a lot of boundaries on that until much later so like if you were in the 80s i mean weed coke all that stuff was just it was a part there were party drugs and they were available right well and not only that it was like go watch go watch bad news bears right, right? and it's just like oh they're smoking cigs they're, they're drinking the beers kids are just yeah. doing whatever they're drinking beer the, the guys are driving around drunk the coach you know <laughs> yeah, what yeah, I mean? yeah. it was like that was the 70s, man. Different era, it was like, yeah. It was like, there's those little memes you see on the internet, like, I survived, you know? It was like, I rode my parents' station in the back <laughs> exactly. of a truck without whatever. I rode my bike without a helmet. It was like, we were really this um, unsupervised generation. Well, that's the joke about 80s movies. Right. Is like, all the John Hughes movies, like, you never know where the parents are in any of this. And that's exactly how we were raised. Like that's the, a, yeah. Like, it's yeah. the polar opposite of how my kids right now are being raised, <laughs> right, which right. is kind of sad in a way. <laughs> right. Like, I kind of, my wife and I kind of weep for it because everything's supervised and planned and, and you kind of mourn for that, you know, 
that time when you could just jump in the car with your buddy who was well, 16 and go down to Trestles all day. Did your parents know where ask. you were? My parents. I used to, never I, knew. My parents. I mean, we had six kids too, so mine never knew. What number are you? Number two. Okay. So it was a little different so for yeah, me. You're a little more supervision on you because you're number two. Well, we had to break a lot of trail. But, yeah. But <laughs> we lived on a lake that connected Lake Michigan. We had a bunch of boats, so yeah. You know, my brother and I could just we once you got in the boat and left the dock. Apparently you're it was anywhere. A, yeah, you're anywhere. And you know, my mom had plenty of stuff to focus on. My dad was he's a doctor. Your dad's yeah, a doctor, right? Yeah, so exactly. Dad's gone and, and working hard. And uh so you know, we're just out and as long as we weren't wrecking something or getting in trouble, she figured we were just doing good things. Right. No, I know. And it <laughs> we, so you were just free to reign and that's that's kinda how it was with us. And you know, I was I was actually, you know, a pretty easy child for my parents, I think, but because I really did stay out of trouble. Like that was the one benefit that, you know, they were really worried about me surfing and early going because they, they could see right on the beach below. Like there was like clay and those guys back in their day were pretty funny guys. You know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so like, Classic and, dude. and yeah. my parents were like, Oh, I don't know if I can have you guys hanging out with them, you know? And, <laughs> and I'm like, dad, look, Mike's onto this deal. There's this whole crew and they're trying to start this thing and there's these contests and I'm just going to go do these things. I mean, it would be funny. I'd come home and I'd have a trophy and they're like, they'd look at, they're like, oh, what? That's awesome. You got a trophy. And then they'd look at the thing. They're like, wait a second. You were in Santa Cruz this weekend? (laughs) (laughs) They had no idea. I was like 14 years old. They had no idea. They're like, did you tell us you were going there? You know, and that's how it was back then. Right. Um, And uh, that, that was fun. You know, and and I, there's there's a, definitely a sense of loss that that's not there. No, no, for sure. And you know, obviously, there some some kids had some trouble from that. I, we so I, we lived next to a yacht club and we raced sailboats. And you know, yacht clubs were it was like country clubs. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a hard sailing contingency and there was a hard partying contingency. Oh, I bet. And, Gosh. Um, and and our club was is still really well known for. Not only being great racers, but also being hard partiers, and uh, which was a great way to grow up. You know, yeah. my, my parents are fairly religious, and and they my they encouraged my dad encouraged our sailing, but my mom was always trying to pull us back from the edge of you know disaster. Disaster. Right yep. And when we my brother and I started racing, you know, we, so we raced scows, which are really fast. And then we when windsurfing came out, we started racing windsurfers because they were doing all match racing. Wow. But I was like same life, like 13, 14, 15. So I was really small and young to be racing windsurfers, but we were good match racers, so we did pretty well. So I would go with my, my brother would drive, we'd go to pro-ams and get in, and we'd be like everybody else in their 20s. Wow. So it'd be like Stolik Naya was sponsoring and Stroh's. So we'd get these these participant stickers on us, and then we could go into the bars and the parties. And, <laughs> oh my, you know, yeah, for and, sure. And no one even cared. It was, yeah. it was the early 80s. Like oh, people for were like, sure. Yeah, go for it, boys. You know? Who's enforcing it then? <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. Yeah. Yeah. There was zero enforcement. It was oh just party enforcement. Oh my god. But it was the same thing, and I, and I think, you know, part of what we've tried to do with our kids is is kind of have like, in a way, an open bar policy where I just mm. said, look, when I was growing up at 16, the number one cause of death was was, yeah. was drunk driving for 16-year-old boys. So when I was growing up, I couldn't tell my parents I was drinking. Mm. Um, and so you, you had to drive yourself home. I mean, you didn't have to, but yeah. you ended up driving yourself home. Sketchy, Don't recommend yeah. it. And um, so with my kids, I was like, look, you know, you're going to be in high school. There's going to be partying. I just want open conversations. I want to know what's going on. I want you to make good decisions. And... In the same way that I don't want to just throw you the car keys when you turn 16, I don't want to just throw you a tequila bottle when you turn 21 or pretend you weren't drinking at the right. time. So we, just, you know, and that's kind of worked for us. Maybe it doesn't work for everybody, but by the time I figured they left for college, I wasn't going to have any 
control anyways. So right. let's make sure that they know what the heck they're doing and, yeah. and can take care of themselves. You know, it's funny because our our two older boys are, um, you know, they're polar opposites. The oldest one was so easy, bookworm, you know, admittedly kind of nerdy. So he wasn't really into the scene. And then our one who's 22 now was Mr. Popular. You know, yeah. good looking, had but That's game. normal. That's kind of normal. Like, number yeah. one's a pleaser. Yeah. This is t- I mean, this is stereotyping, but it's yeah. kind of typical. Number two is going <laughs> to yeah. do something different than number one, right? Exactly. And so he was, you know, definitely more to handle. And we, you know, we always just told him, we're like, look, don't even think about getting in the car. Just call us. Doesn't right. matter. You could tell us. No questions asked. If you're right. really good. And, and that's a policy we we had. And he used it a few times. And we were really happy he did. And we're just like, we, we completely expect that. So, you know, you do your best and you tell kids why they shouldn't go down that road. Right. Um, and, you know, what I've found and, you know, I've just... You've been around and, surfing for a long time. So you've seen people go down the wrong path uh, yeah, and, and it, seen you know, it's the like other way. The, the toughest thing is, you know, I've got friends who are honestly the best parents in the world. And I, I've had close friends who had the best parents in the world. And, and these, these people made just really bad decisions or hung out with people. It doesn't matter what kind of parents you have. You know, it really, it's the friends you choose. Absolutely. And it's the friends. And that's the thing I think that... This has been a constant theme. My wife and I yeah, yeah, yeah. are really kind of looking out for it's like okay are my kids choosing the right friends because you look back at your own life and you look at it and you look at those pivotal years where you're junior high defining where you're going and that's it is it's that junior high you know junior high early high school is when you're really trying to figure out like that first sense of who you are who am i there's another one in your mid-20s i think you go through right but um that first one in junior high is is key, and so it's really and it's important. Brutal. It is like animal. It's like Lord of the Flies, yeah. right? Like I literally think my wife and I joke about this. Like they should just cancel junior high and keep the kids at home for like know, four years or something. It's gnarly. It's and, gnarly. You know, a lot of my friends now are, are teachers for that age, and I have a couple of them like deans of discipline. You know, so you yeah. just hear these horror stories, and you know, sometimes it's the kids, sometimes it's the parents. It's, it's just it's. Well, in, in Kung Fu, we call it blue belts. Like it's that period where like, you've gotten to the point where you have some power and mm-hmm. you're realizing that you have some power, but your control is really limited. And so like in sparring in blue belts, you'll see the worst injuries. Right. Because somebody just learned how to do like a spinning back kick and you should, you, know, you frankly shouldn't do that in a sparring match because right. you probably won't control it, but you don't realize that yet. So somebody breaks somebody else's nose or yeah. you know, something just stupid happens. Ugh. But um, it's, I think adolescents are at that same place where it's boys becoming men, it's girls becoming women, and, and they're starting to find those tools of power that they never had before. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden they realize, hey, if I push this button, I get this result. And so, that, yeah. you know, they do horrible things to each other. Yeah. It, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's all good until somebody gets hurt. You know? <laughs> right. it's, it's just... Well, and we need to get hurt in order to learn. Right. I mean, right? Scar yeah. tissue is so, how we and, and that's the thing. It's like you just... You can't be the helicopter parent, and and I'm guilty more than my wife because my you know for my wife, you know she's on number three and four with our second batch. Yeah, okay, so you guys have you she, have two she, batches of kids. She we have two batches. She was married before, so I had when we got married, I got a I I came with a nine and a five year old. Oh, cool. And we had, but we had full custody right out of the yeah, gate, so okay. there was no going back and forth. And so, you know, they were they were my boys, you know, and. But gosh, it goes so fast, as you know. Yeah, yeah. You and turn around, they're, they're it's gone. It's just like, boom. How old like, are they now? 22 and 26. Right. And the 26-year-old has a, has a one-year-old son. Very, so, very similar to our ages. Yeah. yeah. And so then then our kids now um, are 13 and, and 10. 
So you're on batch number two, and they're right in the middle of right in the middle of uh, middle school, junior high, and right there, right in that little pivotal period. We've been really fortunate with our son. Um, Just you know, he's had this same group of kids who all just push each other. We call them the grade eight. They were like these little friends in their classes, and they all had the same interests. They're just starting to kind of go their separate ways in junior high a little bit, you know, Um, because they have different interests. One's in basketball, one's in swimming, one's in this, and one's in that. But they still. hang out quite a bit and really academically they just they just challenge each other oh awesome when i you know i lost my dad this this year yeah i remember seeing that when we when when i look back at what my dad accomplished and i asked him you know what what was it that kind of did this thing for him and made him tick and you know you trace it back to those those early days he had these couple friends in high school and they all had they push each other and tell so tell us tell us a little bit about your dad so he he was the one, obviously, he was a doctor. Yeah. Early days in Three Arch. Three Arch Bay is a, is a gated community in South, South, South Laguna, Laguna, kind yeah. of on the border there. Yeah. So before he, you get to the DMZ in Dana Point. He was, my dad was born in 1933 on the day the banks closed. Whoa. He, that day, his parents lost all their money. Oh, my God. Right? <laughs> so a, that's how things be born started into, for right? him. Yeah. yeah. Um, and where? Here? That was in New Jersey. Oh, wow. And so he was born on the coast, full depression baby. What, and, what did your grandparents do? He, my grandfather was a pharmacist. Oh wow! And so, um, you know, but there was no FDIC then. So, like, right. So the bank, when the banks went out of business, you lost you whatever done. you had. Yeah, in yeah. And so um, they started over. They got to keep. They kept the pharmacy, and and it was cool. It was like a little soda fountain shop and the whole deal. And sure. Um, Lunch counter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they Those had the that going. Ones. And yeah. my dad, they they played baseball and went swimming and he loved the ocean and stuff like that um did he live near the shore in the summer yeah they were like a mile from the the water oh, they cool. used to play baseball he, he played baseball and the whole thing was you know if you hit a homer it went to the beach you know? oh, wow. and so he was he was super um into it and when he uh got to you know he had these friends in in high school and junior high who pushed each other and they all became i think they all became doctors my dad went ended up going to yale medical school that's a pretty good one yeah and <laughs> and um then joined the navy and was a flight surgeon oh wow he met my mom and in, in Wait, North- he joined the navy after medical school yeah was it the korean war or what was the reason it was it was it wasn't a draft he would just it was you know for those guys it was like how to pay for everything, oh, you right. know, and he yeah, was yeah. on his own deal. Yeah. And so he's self-made guy and met my mom in, in North Carolina. Um, she was a nursing student when he was in, in doing his residency oh, um, cool. in North Carolina. Um, it's a good time to meet the nurses. Yeah. And then they got married and um, drove out across the country in his little T-bird. They oh, did the full Route nice. 66 thing. Wow. Because he got stationed, moved to El Toro. Oh, wow. And he was Which a flight surgeon. Just east of here. Now, right. uh, now yeah. It's, uh, so El Toro was the big Southern California, um, one of the big bases. And my dad was a flight surgeon, and and all those guys were like, "Hey, you." This was 1960, yeah. you know, 62, I think. And wow. they're like, "If you're gonna be here, go check out Laguna. It's insane." And you know, Laguna <laughs> was this artsy little bohemian art colony. Then there was yeah, yeah. nothing you gotta understand in the There's early sixties. Artists, it's and, not what it is. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, and um, it, was a, it was a strange place. Yeah, yeah. So he lived. They rented a couple places down in Victoria, and then had one up here, actually, somewhere right in this neck of the woods. And, super rootsy, right? It yeah, was, super rootsy. So back here, so we live in Bluebird Canyon. This yeah. they used to have the Olympic cottages from like the nineteen thirties Olympics. They oh, moved no them. Way. They moved them in this back. Uh, That's insane. The back of this canyon. Yeah. After There's the Olympics. Yeah. So, so many, many cool weird stories, stories like yeah. that. Yeah. 
And so they were um, they were just down the way, um, just north of Victoria for a while. They had like a little studio that they lived in. And then they bought their first house in Three Arch Bay, um, I think in like 63. And Do you have any idea what they paid for it? That one, I don't know. I think on that one they paid like under 30 grand for wow. the first one. Wow. But then um, in 67... Um, my this one came available my dad was always looking for one that was on the cliff like yeah. wanted something that was there and in 67 this house came available right on the cliff wow and it was 77 grand <laughs> and that was i'll like, take two yeah but i mean like you got 77 that was a lot of money back then yeah. was like he was like stretching pushing he had just started his practice no he's, i get it yeah he's four kids deep at that point and and the house was built. It was actually the first one on the cliff. Wow! It was built in 1929. The walls are paper thin. It's this tiny so it was little a beater, cottage. It's probably it was a beater a, house it was at the time. Beater. My, yeah. Put it this way: My mom said when she first saw it, she was crying. <laughs> she was like, "There's no way I'm moving into here. Like, like this is." It was. She goes, "It was like camping." You know. So, so her, your dad buys a tear, effectively a tear down. At, you know. Yeah, but, but for more money than he could afford. No, but for more money than he could afford, right? Totally. So you yeah. got to live in it. Yeah. Because he's just like. He location, location, location. My dad understood location. You yeah. know, he's just like, "Are you kidding? Look at this!" And and the person who I have to say who who put that lot there and picked that one as the first one, you know, it's got to this day, it's got you know, there's houses all over the clip, but that one just sticks out and it looks left and right. You can see the whole thing. It's pretty ridiculous. So, so for for listeners who are in Three Arch Bay, what's the address on that one? Uh, it's Barankaway. Barankaway. Yeah. It's, it's, are your parents, is your mom still there? She, well, she's still there. She actually, she still owns the home. Okay. Um, she lives actually in a, in a place down in, um, in, uh, Aliso Viejo. Okay. But, um, cause when my dad was fall, getting ill, she was just too much, yeah. you know, she couldn't, she couldn't handle it. And she really likes it actually. Like there's just a lot of, um, great people there who she it's identifies stage in life, with. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, so, my brothers are a couple of my brothers are living there. One, my one brother lives there with his family, and then my other brother um, lives in the front end. And so they're oh, cool. they're making the most of it. My my brother Greg's sort of entrepreneurial, and he's got a house in Utah. He's got a house in La Jolla, but he's kind of like basing himself out of there right now. Because oh, nice. why wouldn't you? Yeah, um, exactly. And um, and these these houses, just for the listeners, I mean. Uh, Southern California real estate has changed dramatically since 1967. Yeah, I, I don't know what this house is worth, and I, and I, you know, I wouldn't care to speculate exactly. But you know, houses in Three Arch Bay on the on the cliff are tens of millions of dollars now. Yeah, that one. Our, ours is pretty small. I think I, to me, and I always tell my mom, I go, I go, Mom, that lot is ten million dollars. Like just that easily, yeah. you know. But um, it's not really. You know, for us, it's like if we can hang on to it. But it's your house. You don't want to get rid of it. No, no, and, and but it, it doesn't yeah. mean it. You know, and and we, you know, we had six kids. We grew up um, with bunk beds. It was a small house. Sure. You know, it was it, it was like there was four of us in a room, and the walls were paper thin. Man, when there was a storm in the wintertime in that house, it was single pane. <laughs> it was like banging. It was just freaking crazy. <laughs> I, we were crying at night, just like we're gonna fall off the cliff you know it was it was scary you know um and uh it's 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 if anybody did buy it now it'd be a complete teardown because no 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 but but it's but for you it's the home you grew up in it's the home you want to remember it's it's all those special memories it's, it's just one of those things where you know you cannot my love of the ocean 
came from just staring out the window all day yeah. and yeah. just looking down and you know it's funny because nowadays with you see all these drone shots all over the web of surfers and, and it's such a unique angle when you see people from above that was what that was how I fell in love with surfing. All I was day, watching day. guys like Clay Berryhill yeah. and Damon and Wade Binley and these guys get these waves and they look like they were flying yeah. because, you know, I'm watching them. I could see the bottom of the ocean. I could see what they couldn't see from right. above. I'm looking like God's eye view and I'm watching them riding these pulses of energy and get barreled in this beautiful watercolor everything. I was just like, that's going to be me pretty soon. Like, yeah. I have to do that. How do that I get is into that? too cool, you know? That, that was my experience. I mean, we grew up in the water. I was very comfortable with boats and sailing. But as we got older and we were windsurfing in the storms, you know, where these big where waves would get generated, we started just destroying equipment because the yeah. waves are so close together. And so we'd blow out a universal or rip through a sail I and bet. You know, all this stuff. And we were kids. We couldn't afford to just, we weren't sponsored and right. it's expensive equipment. Yeah. So my brother and I kept simplifying. That's how we got into surfing. But the thing that we would do these family trips down to Florida a lot to West Palm Beach. And so we'd stay at Singer Island where like Pump House and Reef Road and these mm. kind of the, the, some of the better spots in yep. Florida are. And um, and I'd see these, these you know, Florida's a little more colorful than probably California was. The, you know, the back then the guys wanted their boards to match their, their shorts and things like that, yeah. which we'd yeah. probably mock a little bit today. The, but The era, yeah. Yeah, but it, yeah. but it was so like in the sun deck, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. But it was... Um, Fox was a, was a big brand down there, but it was it was um, it was just you would see these guys in the water, just so so elegantly, just mm -hmm. with a board. There's no sail. There's no. It's just them and their board and the energy in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And that to me was like my brother and I would just start. We're like we, we just we got to figure this out. Like, yeah. Like this is this. It's I mean, too cool. Yeah. We've done everything else, but this is the thing itself. Like, yeah. How do you get to that? Because yep. that's like like we've tried all the other religions. How do we get to Zen Buddhism? No. It's you know? it's. It's so, it's hard to explain, obviously, to people. And, and you know, it's boring sometimes when somebody doesn't surf because you're sitting there going, it's so cool. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things where I, I always tell people, I go, look, waves are this cosmic force, right? Think about There's every some little storm someplace. Yeah. It's like, think of, this is how matter and energy travels, whether it's sound waves, you know, heat waves, whatever. It's like you get to ride this physical, you know, wave of energy. This energy source. This energy source. You're tapping into it and you're playing it. It's like the closest thing you can get to playing with God. So, yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's very, it's a kind of a transcendent thing when all the elements are there. And, and can, can you, you explain see that, that a little stuff. bit? Like, like, so we're in Southern California and let's say we get a Southern Hemisphere swell. Yeah. Or maybe a Mexican hurricane swell. So there's, they, they travel different distances. You get different periods. Yeah. I actually think this is really fascinating. And I think if when you explain it, it becomes really fascinating. So you're not just because a lot of times people come like the other right. day I was getting out of the water at Sleepy and some guy's like, why do the waves break closer to the shore at different times of the day? And you yeah. Know, yeah, like, the tide. How, never, how yeah. much time do you have? You know, yeah, we talk about exactly. lunar, lunar tides and things like that. Right. But kind of help the listeners understand when you see it. So you're sitting in Southern California, you're at Three Arch Bay, you're on the cliff and you're watching these waves come into the bay and wrap mm -hmm. into the bay. Mm hmm if it's a southern hemisphere swell, where are they coming from? How does that wave get there? And why is it glassy and calm where you're watching it? Right. But there was some storm thousands of thousands miles away. Thousands of miles away, yeah. yeah. That and that, that's the beauty of the ocean, right? So it's like you have these, these systems that are always 
moving around somewhere in the ocean and they're generating wind and that wind is kicking up waves those waves over a vast you know time and distance um get very organized and so um they march into these like perfect symmetry and in a in you know anywhere on the coast obviously you're dealing with local weather conditions but so the purely magic days um to your point it a, a pure magic day in the summertime is the local you have a high pressure system it's sunny you get wind blowing offshore um locally and you have these swells and these waves traveling and they're at the very end of their journey that's maybe a 10,000 mile journey across the ocean it could have been from a storm that was generated down by Fiji or New Zealand even. right right could and, have been coming off Antarctica and 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 in the wintertime they're coming off yeah exactly they're coming out of the Aleutians and right. so these things are traveling vast distances and you know you get to be there for that little tiny moment when they release all their energy on the shore and so on the shore yeah you know they all hit the shore and depending on the shape of the shore and the bathymetry and the and what happens that affects the shape of the wave and the way it breaks and so surfers are always they're scouring the coast looking for that little spot and that little nook and that little cranny where that wave's going to bend properly and give them the roller coaster ride they're looking for right and in optimal conditions with the right wind and the right everything and if you play your cards just right the wave will let you inside of it, yep. inside the tube, and you'll be traveling inside a tube completely dry, right. inside a spinning vortex of water, and you're looking out, and then you get to exit that, and and um, that is the closest thing to heaven on earth if you're a surfer. And, you know, I think I, I've met so many adventure guys over the years, and... and um, you know, paragliders and all these things. Everybody has their thing. Yeah. You know, um, deep powder and skiing and all this stuff. But um, it's hard to compare a tube ride to anything. Isn't is, doesn't that drive you nuts? Like I love, I love. Look, I do a lot of sports. You probably, I know you do a lot of sports. Um, they're all wonderful in their own way. But when a guy who's like, well, I skateboard. Would I be a good? I snowboard. And I'm like, those are all great. But the mountain's not moving. You right. Know, the the Static. street's not moving. Yeah. The fundamental difference is you're riding pure energy that's that's going from potential to kinetic. I mean, that's like a huge deal. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's this. Um, a friend of mine just sent me this quote. This is from Timothy Leary, who you know was this right. professor at Harvard who got kicked out for doing a lot of LSD research, and then mm-hmm. he he moved to Laguna for a time. He got busted in Laguna. Yeah, exactly. This is the whole brother brotherhood, brotherhood of eternal, eternal love. love. Yeah, he was doing <laughs> yeah. some time with the brotherhood <laughs> exactly. in the canyon, but he had this. Um, I think he probably must have written this when he was here, but he talks about surfers and he said, surfers are the throw-aheads of mankind, not the dregs. They aren't the black sheep of humanity, but the futurists, and they are leading the way to where man ultimately wants to be. The act of the ride is the epitome of be here now, and the tube ride is the most acute form of that, which is your future is right ahead of you. The past is exploding behind you. Your wake is disappearing. Your footprints are washed from the sand. It's a non-productive, non-depletive act that's done purely for the value of the dance itself, and that is the destiny of man. I mean, does that? What? Do you have any thoughts on I that? Think, yeah. Well, I think I he 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 get he has me all the way until that's the destiny of man. <laughs> you know, I mean, he gets a little a little <laughs> overcooked like, there. Yeah, yeah the I don't want to oversell it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I think 
what's great there, and I think that actually came from an interview that he did years later, but um, with Steve Pesman, I think. I, I, oh, yeah. Don't quote um, me on that. That's but, for editor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, but, you know, the the thing was is he, he related, you know, surfers, that whole hippie scene and the drug-taking thing, it got pretty out of control, obviously, in the early 70s. And, the, again, sure. that was one of those things that was kind of um, – it was – kind of sad because a lot of people lost their way but they you know people were they were there was a lot that people were trying to escape then too i mean right. vietnam was freaking Br- brutal you know, brutal and, and and the war at home i mean yeah. we, we were just watching the kent state yeah. you know massacre yeah. I mean, it was it it's, was awful it's just you can't imagine like i don't think today's generation understands what it's like to sacrifice we, there hasn't been a generation in america that's had to sacrifice anything since vietnam really right you know there hasn't been a draft there hasn't been a draft you know you, you there are tons of heroes and these people who go and volunteer and do these amazing things and that's not that that not taking anything away from them because they're incredible people and humans um but, but the vast vol- majority of yeah. American citizens, though, they don't have to sacrifice and they haven't had to sacrifice. And I think that's one of those things that, you know, Vietnam just tore us apart because it was such a it was the first time that we were really troubled by what the hell was going on. Why were we there? Who yeah. are we supporting? You know, I mean, the, what are we doing? The, the, yeah. the, the Ken Burns documentary is fantastic. Have you seen it? Uh, I've seen parts of it. I don't think I've seen the whole thing because it's, it's, it's multiple. It's, yeah, it's like 10 episodes yeah. that are like two hours long. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a commitment. But I, but I, it's I really love it. Good. My wife always gets in my case when I'm watching this thing. <laughs> no, well, I mean, they're, they're great. <laughs> they're so good. Yeah, they're so good. And, and, and you know, and it's, it's hard to watch at times. But the, yeah. I think, the you know, look, uh, I don't think anybody thinks we did you know, phenomenal job in Vietnam. But at the same time, you recognize there were people who were drafted who were forced to be there yeah. to do their Can part for the country. Yeah. And, and regardless of whether or not the politics were great. And, yeah. you, and, you know, when they were coming home, they weren't, you know, they were being disrespected. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on yeah. um, that, that I think we've learned from. But, um, but yeah, I, you and I kind of grew up at the tail end of that. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't even get it in school because it was so fresh by the time we were going through high school. It was still too fresh. Nobody really wanted to talk about it. I mean, it was funny because the movie, not funny, but I mean, I remember when Platoon came out. Right. That was like the big deal because it was like, wow, we're, we're, it's okay to talk about it, you know? Right, right. Apocalypse Now was a little too early. It was almost too before its time. And, and really surreal. Ready. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was a little, you know, Platoon was like, okay, we're going to have this conversation now. And right. that, that came out in like 86 or right. 84, or I don't know, somewhere in there. Full Metal Jacket, yeah. all that stuff came And then you had out. these yeah. this whole slew of, of, of those films where people started to talk about it. But it, it's, you know, it was a tragi- tragedy for, for a generation. And you talk to people who lived through that. And, um, and it really, you know, just tore at the fabric. And I think we're still still trying to recover right as a country um we're still trying to recover from that because um we have vietnam vets are a big part of our homeless yeah you know and and it's just one of those things where it was only that it was really like if you think about i I think about this stuff a lot just because i've been working in media but right um it was so easy to mobilize a country during world war ii because media was brand new and it was very limited. And they weren't showing limited. body counts. Right. Yeah. The collective consciousness was very easy for us to get everybody kind of on board and, and make these little, you know, documentaries and run these newsreels before movies and get people on board. And everybody I mean, was kind of News like, was propaganda, effectively. But even yeah. if we had, my question now, honestly, is like, even if we had to fight somebody like a Hitler, you wonder if we would actually have the balls and the ability to get everybody on board. Well, well, I think 
at least what I see with social media, and this has been some of the conversation we've had on this podcast with um, like this other film, Same God, where uh, a, a, what should have been kind of a non-event be, blew up into mass national controversy, mm-hmm. um, largely because of image and people not reading the words, just jumping to one sentence in, in a, a post. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's like today, you, you, could, you can post the most beautiful, wonderful thing, and you're going to get some troll yeah. that just takes a dump all over it. Right. Just 100%. because that's how they get power. And that's, how, you know, and yeah. I, I think to your point, like, you know, our, our politics today, we just had a national election. And, um, you know, here in Orange County, we had Harley Ruda, who's a former Republican, mm-hmm. who's, in, you know, he became independent, then a Democrat, ran against Dana Rohrabacher. Yep. Um, Dana's, I know Dana, he's a nice guy. I like him a lot. Um, he's probably been in office a little too long, but at, last night when we were watching, when we were watching the, the, re, the returns and they had this, the guy who was Harley's, um, no, so this is a, a Democrat, uh, the guy who's running his campaign. He said, they said, well, what made Harley so popular with, with Orange County, you know, voters? And the guy said, well, he's a Republican. <laughs> no, was like, did he really? I mean, I, he probably had too many cocktails. But <laughs> this but, was his campaign guy. Yeah, but I was oh I was gosh. I was laughing because I was like, uh, well, well, yeah. I mean, basically, he he is in a way. I mean, he's it, just it, not. I think he's just what, not crazy. He's yeah. just not crazy. Yeah, and 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 people are like, yeah, Dana, you've had you know. 30 years is a long time. Way too long. I, yeah. I, I'm not a fan of career politicians. Me either. I, I, I did th- a lot of work for term limits. I yeah. think it's just not, I think it's toxic for... for. It ruins perfectly good people. Yeah, yeah. it does. The longer you're there, the worse it gets. So um, as much as, you know, whatever, it, it's like, um, I'm, I, I wish there were term limits. Because no, I, I, yeah. I think it's just one of these things. And I, I also think, you know, in my perfect world, everybody who's in Congress should have, you know, at least signed a paycheck at some point or the other. And should have to live under the laws they're passing, yeah. right? Yeah. That's the other. I mean, that's just like, that's common sense. It's one of the things. Know? Eugene McCarthy said that after he retired. He <laughs> said, you know, I wish I had known what it was like to run a business under these laws we were passing. Yeah. Because, you know, you would change your perspective a little bit. And and so, you know, we're in this very interesting time. Um, but, but everybody's fighting over nothing. I mean, you've got one guy, Harley Ruda, and one guy... Dana Rohrbacher. Granted, Dana is, I love him, but he's, he's like grandpa. Like, yeah. Probably needs to retire. Yeah. And Harley's a good replacement for him for this district. But, but I was kind of like, what are we arguing about? I mean, you guys, yeah. you guys are pretty close to the center here. Yeah. I mean, what, yeah. Are you, what, what are you doing? And, you know, the one thing I think um, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting because, you know, we've, the media, is what pits us and social media really is what, you know, what gets the clicks. And I've known this cause I worked in the media world right. and, and, and played this game is that, you know, there's, there's no clicks in, in just boring stories of like in-depth details about what you really want to do and policy wonking. Right. Everybody getting along doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't sell. Yeah. Right. And so you have this, this, these, you know, what's really, I think, fallen by the wayside and in my opinion i think the biggest casualty of the last few years is um and you you see it in the polls people just don't trust the media either side like right. and and rightfully so and and i think you know things like this if you look at what we're doing right now um 
This is a raw podcast, so it probably won't be edited. Right. It won't be edited. And, and there's there's some really good ones. Like if you go dig around and you really do want to go research a policy and what's going on and, and, and really look at both sides, because at the end of the day, I look at it and I go, left and right, we all want the same thing. Right. We argue over what's the best method to do it. Right. Right. And we by all, the way, we're all sitting at the middle of the political spectrum. Right. There's there's basically social anarchy in one right. side, and there's there's totalitarianism in the other. Right. And we're, you know, if, if you're looking at a parliamentary model, we're basically Christian Democrats and social Democrats mm-hmm. arguing about you know what's the best way forward, which is right fortunate in a way, but it also I, I was, I'm always saying you know this is a binary set of choices you know yeah that's a little bit false like I. I don't really believe the two-party model. I, I think we don't incorporate enough voices in that. In that yeah, I agree. I, I think I think the only thing, you know, worse than a two-party model is a one-party model. Well, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to say that it's it's a lot like Cuba, only with twice as many choices. Yeah. Because, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, you've traveled enough to know, it, and that's the one thing I always, when when I hear people, the thing I think that irks me, and and, and, I, and I'm sure you've seen this too, is like, when you see people complaining about this country and what is, and they, they really just like start going off about all the things wrong with it. And you just go, you travel, dude, a bit. go travel. Why is because everyone trying you, to get here? You need yeah, to yeah. go look around and realize and understand and be so grateful for the being part of this miracle of what this place is and what you can do here. Right. And the freedom you still have, at least right now, right. to go accomplish anything you set out to do, you know. And and that, you know, if you risk throwing that away, right. you know, because you think there's some utopia if, if just your people get in charge, you're tripping and you have no idea. And by the way, th- that never works. Never works. The worst thing that happens in America is when one party runs the show, no. in, in my opinion. Oh, 100%. And, right. and that's why I think it was the, the result yesterday is great mm-hmm. because it's going to force people. If you want to get something done, then you guys are going to have to work it out a little bit. Negotiate. Otherwise, yeah. And you know what? If you're a business person, you really don't care if there's gridlock. No, well, no, frankly, it slows down the, the, the march of, of government, which right. doesn't tend to help the rest of right. us. Right. It's just, it's one of those things where, you know, what what's fascinating to me, I was listening to another podcast today, and it was, you look at what the success of Amazon and and Apple and all the, all the um, you know, fang stocks or whatever, but yeah. you look at what, the way the economy's moving in the private sector, and millennials understand this is, is, you know, Uber and stuff. It's like, what are they doing? At the end of the day, they're reducing the transaction cost right. of what's going on. They're disrupting the transaction they're cost. They're disrupting. Yeah. And, but, but you don't see any of that in government. And can you imagine how efficient <laughs> you could make government well, yeah. if you did that? Like, like not... You wouldn't even donate to... I like to point this out. If it was a charity, you wouldn't donate to it because of how much it costs no. to get a dollar from... It'd be the worst charity ever. Right. Right. It'd be the worst charity ever because you're you're shelling out. And that's why every time I see a proposal for like, well, let's create this new agency that's going to make it fair. And like, you wonder why colleges and the price of colleges going up. My buddy, it's like San Diego State, they have hundreds of people on their like diversity staff. Oh, dude. And And it's like, and and it's just like, I get it. But that is so dumb. (laughs) <laughs> and it's just such it's the biggest waste of money we're, we're spending money on things that may not may not uh, drive a better education right and I think there's there's great reasons to have diversity um, of course and to focus on it but we also need to keep in, in balance are we actually 
how does this deliver against an ap- academic education, right? Right. So how do you how do you balance? What's that? the product? I think the I think people now more than ever are actually questioning um, what's the finished product look like. Well, for for example, and so, the value. Well, no. So you know, we're fortunate. Our boys. I only had two kids. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I could afford a third or fourth kid to go to college. <laughs> and, you know, we could kind of pick the schools. Um, they had good enough grades. They came from a good school district, public schools here in Laguna. But, you know, yeah. Laguna sends kids to good schools. Right. So our older son went to Kenyan. Our younger son went to school in Europe. And uh, it probably it probably cost four times, four or five times what I paid to go to college. Jeez. I mean, really, really. And I went to a good liberal arts college. But it's, you know, it's there's fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year and it's it's a lot of money. And yeah. and if you ask me, do you get a return on your investment, um, I can't monetize that. I can't fi- give you a financial mm-hmm. ROI on that. I can tell you that my kids know I, I think the reason the reason I like liberal arts and I think it makes sense is because I actually believe Thomas Jefferson that if we want to make great citizens, you probably need to study or read a broad swath of things and mm-hmm. have a good understanding of your culture and your community and be able to participate in it. Um, that's not the broad swath of our humanity in America. And and I don't, you know, we were fortunate enough, it's like horse riding lessons or, or piano lessons. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you get an ROI on that. Yeah. But it's, it's nice if you can do it. Right. And um, what, when I see colleges today, I think the thing that's a lot of what's driving up cost is, you know, when, when, we, were, when, when we were in, in school, you know, the, the dorms were cinder blocks and mm-hmm. bunk beds were pretty simple and the the food in the in the cafeteria wasn't fantastic. It was Fruit Loops in a plastic can. Exactly right. <laughs> I mean, now they're fighting over the cafeteria you have and the quality. You know, do you have vegan options? And, right. You know these these luxury dorms, and I'm just yeah. looking at it going well. You know, you amplify that through an educational cost structure, and of course, it yeah. all starts to cost multiples of what we used to spend on. Um, yeah. That model. I mean. That model it's being disrupted is, already. is broken yeah. and yeah. it's going to get disrupted. It's only a matter of time. And hopefully the healthcare thing is going to be the same thing. Because if you look at what the problem with our healthcare system is, it's just there's too many middlemen oh, yeah. between the patient and the doctor. So, so my, and that's the transaction costs. So my godfather is my godfather because he used to deliver my dad's babies in medical school. Because my dad's a head and neck specialist, hated going below the shoulders. You right. Know? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> And, and my godfather's funny. he's Peruvian and he he's um he's a OB, he was a OBGYN. His daughter runs a uh, uh, a free clinic in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Because there's a lot of people, even with you know universal healthcare, a lot of people who yeah. are non-residents who fall through the cracks, etc. And what my dad said, so he vo- volunteers there. My godfather volunteers there. He said, "What's amazing is when somebody comes into that free clinic, they have all these people volunteering who are you know." professional physicians, dentists, et cetera, they can handle five things in one day mm. because the clinic isn't driven by insurance. Right. And, and, you know, and he said the cost the of care, the cost of care is nothing. Right. right? It's, it's very, I mean, not nothing, but it's, it's yeah. a fraction of what you would normally pay. Yeah. Where, you know, my mother went in to get a, a, a surgery on her leg and um, the hospital charged in Grand Rapids charged $14,000 for a skin graft. My father uses skin grafts all the time, and he was—he likes to itemize the bill because right. he's a physician. Yeah, and of he's course. Anal, anal, and he goes, he goes, he said, "What? What's this fourteen thousand dollars skin graft?" And the the hospital tried to say, "Well, you don't understand." You know, he said, "No, I understand really well. I actually buy a lot of these. Uh, I've never seen a fourteen thousand dollars skin graft." Yeah. And this is just an example of you know somebody figured out how to get that through the system, and totally. so that it amplifies the cost of care. And nobody's exactly. nobody's checking, nobody's yeah, auditing it's, that it's because once something's in that bureaucracy, 
where there is nobody, there's no incentive right. to, you know, make it efficient. Well, because the that, patient doesn't care. The patient's the patient not paying the bill. Care, yeah. And, and neither does the doctor. And so you, we've completely removed all incentives, you know, for, for that thing. And, and, and the way it works now is like you go into an office and doctors have to do something to you to get paid. Right. Because the way it goes to get Medicare, right, like they have to do some procedure. You can't just go in and t- like my dad, when he started his practice, he was just a GP, you know, right. and it was like, he would go, I think you're fine. Yeah. You just need to go to bed earlier. Here's you know, a couple of aspirin. Like, and yeah. if it didn't give you anything, it's like you paid your $30 and that right. was that. You know, today, you don't, doctors don't get paid for their time anymore. Right. They have to actually, you know, prescribe something or do something. And so when you talk about, well, we're the most over medicated, whatever. Well, that's, that's part the, of the, a symptom of the system the that structure. we created. And yep. so it's it's really difficult. I used to have such lengthy discussions with my dad about this because, you know, he was very opinionated, obviously, about it. And um, Well, they, they, our, our fathers grew through a system that fundamentally changed in a direction that, in their, in that they noticed didn't, didn't help the patient, yeah. didn't help the doctor. And no. so then you start to wonder, well, who yeah. is this helping and why are they in the middle of this, this process? My mom had to go on, you know, antidepressants at the end of of their practice because the paperwork she ran my dad's office oh wow and you know the paperwork quadrupled in the last few years she was the one who kind of digitized everything she was really kind of ahead of the game um in their industry and that kind of stuff but it was just that 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 amount of regulation and the, the the stuff that they had to do just to kind of get by and that's why people don't have their own practices anymore well no that my i was going to say my my own father, you know, my dad and, and now my brother-in-law is a head and neck specialist too, who they practiced together and then they basically merged their practice into a hospital. Right. Because they were all forced to through the systems. Yep. And, um, and my father retired that way and we, he did fine. But when, when my brother and I, so my dad went to Johns Hopkins when, when we were in grade school, in fifth grade, I stood on the floor in Johns Hopkins and watched a radical neck surgery, you know? Mm. Um, so it was, it was, wow. I, I loved it. I loved we used to assist, I used to assist my dad from time to time on, you know, during the weekends or on a home visit because we were in Michigan and people still did that. Right. And um, I just thought the, like giving care was wonderful, right? Yeah. And the technical elements were really fun. Um, but my dad basically talked, my brothers and I, three bro- two brothers, and he just basically was like, you look by the, why do you want to be a doctor? He said, because, you know, the lifestyle you're enjoying today, house on a lake, boats, whatever. Mm-hmm. He goes, the reason you have that is because I get up at 3 a.m. to go fix a drunk's face who isn't going to pay me. The reason you have that is because I'm available 24-7. The reason you have that is because I'm willing to do this work and I have a private practice. Right. By the time you get here, this life won't be here anymore. Oh, yeah. So, so if you want to do it because you're just altruistic, great. It's a great reason to do it. Right. But if you want to do it because you think you're going to make... Money, a, yeah, li- yeah, a real yeah. income. It's it's not going to be here anymore. That's not your deal. Yeah, and and he did that to me a couple of times. He did that when I was you know thinking about going into into pre med, and then he did it again when I was going to apply to law schools. And he said, "That's great. Let's go. Let's go interview some attorneys. Yeah, and talk about the industry. Yeah, and, and so <laughs> I would ask them what they did, and like I have a cousin who's a judge. There's all yeah. these you know talented attorneys, and they'd tell me what they did for a living, and they'd kind of you know this is what I do. I'm this, and I was like, wow. And my dad, my dad would say how many hours a week do you work? Yeah. You know, and do you work weekends and, you know, all these things. And all of a sudden I would start to see quality of life stuff. Wow. That sucks. Yeah. And so you start, I mean, it's wonderful. People do have great legal careers and there's great reasons to do it. 
but from a lifestyle perspective, it wasn't hitting it. Yeah. So let's get back to you. So you're a kid, you're watching these amazing waves in Three Arch Bay, <laughs> and you go from your first pop out hollow board yeah. to, to, to becoming a pro surfer. How, what was that journey like? Well, again, it was such an interesting time for us because, like I was saying, there's these little cracks of light coming through um, via those magazines yeah. who were focusing on the international, what was going on in Australia and all that ever. And, you know, we were the NSSA um, at the time, which was the National Scholastic Surfing Association. So it was this little podunk little organization. They ran contests up and down the coast. Um, and amateur surfing was kind of dead. So it was really wasn't much of it. But Ian Cairns and Peter Townen, who were ranked the number one and two surfers in the world, you know, just a couple years earlier, came over, moved to the United States and said, you know, purely for the reason of like trying to launch pro surfing and awaken the super, you know, the sleeping giant over here. Right. And they said, we're going to, you know, we're going to, going to basically go recruit some kids. And so they, they came here and took control of that organization and right. started really kind of going up and down the coast and recruiting. Kids. So they started with the NSSA. Yeah. They started with the NSSA. And that's why, okay. So I know Kanga, Ian Karen's pretty yeah. well. Yeah. I used to go on surf yeah. trips with him until he started supping. Yep. I didn't know what was going on, but yeah. no, no, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. love, I love Kanga. But so... And he was coaching Tom Curran back then. That's when Tom was in the NSSA, yeah, so I'm guessing, right? Tom was like, Tom was the, the first, if you talk to the, the story, when they, you know, their first time they set eyes on Tom and they yeah. saw him surf. And Tom, you know, mind you, he was a, he was a son of a big wave legend. Pat, Pat Curran was yeah. like a huge deal in the 60s and stuff. But, um, but Pat was no fan and, and they, you know, his parents Pat split up. hated so, yeah, pro surfing. Yeah, right? he, he just hated competition and the whole deal. Yeah. Um, but Tom's mom was the one driving around all these events, and right. you know she she was the one who raised him really. And yeah, um, sweet woman, right? And yeah, and and so Ian and Peter saw him, and they just went, "Whoa, man, we've got something here." Yeah. And we, I remember my first contest that Mike Parsons dragged me to. It was in Topanga. It was at Topanga up in um, Malibu. In Malibu, and. That was the first time I saw Tom Curran ever surf, and it was just a horrible little three-foot day, you know, barely breaking, and he pulled this little 360 at the end of his wave, and just the way he flew down the line and the style he had and everything, and it, it was, you know, he was so light years ahead of everybody at the time, and we were just like, whoa, that is the best surfer in the world. <laughs> and and we, you know, as much as we idolized those guys, we knew he was going to do something, and sure enough... Um, you know, within a couple of years, um, he was out on the world tour. And to, so to be, to finally see somebody, um, that we could actually physically touch and we knew and everything like go out and conquer the world for us as little kids, that Open was, the world. that Open was the doors, just right? like, are you kidding me? Like, and, and we all, so how did you end up on a team at the OP team with Tom Curran? How'd you get from seeing him surfing as a kid to that? <laughs> that was, um, well, I did the NSSA thing and, and went through the ranks and, you know, did the juniors and the, and the, and then the men's and, and then it was just really fortunate timing for me because, um, the NSSA was, was moving along, but there was also, by the time I got to the men's division, there was the, um, there was the bud tour, which started in California and I had found success on both the NSSA and the Bud Tour. I was doing pretty well and doing um getting some good results as an amateur cuz you actually got to the got a chance to compete against pros. And um and just so happened that right when I was 
ready to turn pro, I was ranked um, the number one amateur on the Bud Tour. And that was really starting to kind of um, get some of the attention of the, of the big sponsors. And OP just happened to be the, the, the big one at the time. And um, that was that was it. I was I lucked into a pretty cool little contract with them. And um, next thing I knew, Tom Curran was driving into my neighborhood and we were doing photo shoots in our backyard. And I was traveling around the world with him, which... You know, we'd we'd already known each other a little bit because we used to stay at his house for contest um, uh, when we were in town in Santa Barbara. When we had contests in Ventura, I'd stay at Tom's house um, with his first wife, Marie. Oh, yeah, yeah. From yeah, France. Yeah. Um, and um, I remember I remember surfing with him right before he left. To By the way, go- I, don't, I don't know Tom Curran. Uh-huh. I just know everything about him from reading Surfer Magazine. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. all I know from about him is from reading about yeah. him and listening to Kanga tell stories. He's he's a classic. I mean, Tom's just, he's so he's so humble and he's really quiet. And, you know, the thing that people didn't understand back then and the reason why Tom was kind of, um, he, he sort of broke the mold for California because, like I said, Californians weren't allowed to try. That was our deal. Like, you know, when you can claim it because, again, we're this hippie throwback culture. Everything's got to be cool, man. And like competition, that's not cool. Like you're trying too hard. Like you can't you couldn't be seen jumping rope or doing any of that stuff. Like it was you're too much of a jock. Like surfing is not a jock deal. Right. And so Tom, the only reason he transcended that and broke that barrier and got sort of the blessing of people who really weren't contest guys was number one he had the dna like his dad was a legend so people respected that number two was he just had oodles of style i was gonna say that just yeah. unbelievable style and grace and and um and and he really and humility he didn't claim it he wasn't doing anything he was just kind Quiet of kid. it was yeah. it looked incidental it looked like he was just good by accident he yeah. didn't see tom training and you know, turns out he did little, a little bit, right? Little, yeah, yeah. but when I so <laughs> right before he left for Australia, before he clinched his first world title, we were staying. We, Mike and I stayed at his house because we, we had a contest up there, and he was swimming. I was gonna say he was in the pool lot. Pool doing fifteen thousand yards a week, you know, and wow, and and swimming his brains out, and he was so fit. And we, I remember after this contest, we got um, Ventura overhead like ten foot. Just Tom okay. was out there on yeah. six nine, just killing it and uh that was it was his black beauty that he oh took wow the yeah, yeah 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 you can still buy those from uh yeah from, from, it was yeah. the one that he won and he clinched the title on and and um and he um uh he was just amazing at that point but the whole reason i you know that he kind of transcended and sort of like got buy-in from even the people who are pretty pessimistic about the stuff is because of the fact of how he did it yeah and and it was the method in which he did it and to this day i think if you're a california pro surfer you know dane reynolds is probably the latest example you know dane really resonated with a lot of people because he you know he did it he did the contest thing reluctantly right you know he didn't want to do it but he He, did it almost fought it right? and Yeah. yeah and he never really you know he was great as an amateur unbelievable amateur surfer and and did really well as a pro i think he struggled a little more emotionally with what he was doing and um but it didn't change the fact that he was just an incredible surfer so people you know they still resonate with that and, and because yeah. even surf fans like i'm a surf fan and i like watching pro surfing but it's like it pro surfing isn't the be all end all it's not what 
it's not it doesn't summarize everything and so you know people are conflicted <laughs> right like i mean i think here we you know you have hans hagen a lot of these guys that were early stage free surf kind of guys who didn't really do a lot of contests but were more focused on style flow the things that you're talking about mm -hmm. and that's kind of opened up a whole new cat i mean today that's kind of almost a bigger category in some ways i don't know it's bigger but well, it's, it's it's a big category yeah i mean it's just it's it's always been there. It's yeah. just that for a time, pro surfing and really pro surfing, the, the, the reality is, is that the pro surfing aspect of it gets the eyeballs. Right. And this 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 is what the data and the sponsorship, is. So let me right? just yeah. tell you. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Like, I'm not trying to feed. feed no, it's, yeah. it's it's when the waves are good. Yeah. And the best guys are in the event. Yeah. The numbers go through the roof. Of course. If the waves are not good. And the best guys aren't in the event. The no numbers suck. Yeah, yeah. There's no getting around that. <laughs> no amount of marketing spend, no amount of whatever is ever going to change that. You could put them in the pool. You could do whatever. But if it's not cloud break or chopu or whatever. I was going to ask if the deal. ranch is going to change any of that. I don't. This think, is Kelly Slater's new I, wave I think pool. The, I think the wave pool. I don't think it's going to be a boon for pro surfing. I think it, the wave pools will be great for surfers. Right. Guys like yourself who were stuck in Michigan. And imagine if you guys could go to some wave that was consistent every day, you know. Or you could learn to ride tubes. Yeah. yeah. If, if in 10 years, you know, there's a proliferation of pools where, you know, you don't have to drive too far if you're living in St. Louis or something like that or Austin, um, that could be cool. Yeah. But I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to change the sport because it just, there's not enough magic Right. It's well. I think half the fun of watching great surfing is having different waves. Right. Right. It's on the, just, at the same break. It's not that wave didn't travel to our earlier conversation. It didn't travel ten thousand miles and jack up on a reef. You know, it's just that it's a different thing. And you're not really risking anything riding it. No. And and so you know, and that you know, the beauty of the sport where I where I do feel like what's awesome about um, pro surfing is is Hey, anybody can make a killer skate video segment and anybody can make a killer surf video clip because I've got all the editing sure. tools and I can make myself look really freaking good, <laughs> right. Right? right? And there, there was a period, especially in the 90s and, and, and early 2000s, where a lot of guys made their careers doing that, just doing video parts. But then when you actually saw them, in real life, and you're like, okay, show me. Yeah. You know, bring that to life right now in the put next it 30 minutes. Put in a contest minutes. right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. put it to life. Minutes, it's five like waves. Yeah. That, that is the beauty of it is like it is on demand. It's like, and and to me, that is the challenge. It's like, okay, well, sh I've seen what you could do with, with fancy editing. Now, and, and now prove to me that that's yeah. real. Right. And show me right now. Right. And, and that's, I still think there's something to that. Absolutely. But the audience for that is really small. Because you and I are interested because we live on the coast and we surf and this and that. Right. It's it's pro performance surfing is a very nuanced thing. Yeah, it's not like you know, big wave surfing. Everybody gets the cab driver, your Uber driver. He understands the when somebody takes off on jaws. jaws. He's like, yeah, yeah. that guy is a lunatic. Of course, you know? yeah. And um, but you know, nobody's gonna care if that guy finished his you know rotation on the three foot wave in the wave pool. Like that's right. not going to get the cabbie well, guy driving. Even in Hawaii. Like, I mean, look, I, I love watching the North shore, but if it's, if it's an onshore day at sunset and it's, you know, not just not that impressive. Yeah. I just, or even if it's just, if it's big, but it's just bumpy and beat yeah. up and no one's doing much. Yeah. I'll flip to something else. No. And that, and that's the challenge surfing's always had. It's just so hard to bottle up as mm. a sport. It's a really big, how do you package it? Big deal. And, and, 
um, you know, there's there's just no getting around it, you know, and that's why. Um, on the one hand, I love the fact that there's this mechanism for people to go and try to accomplish something, and and you know, the benefit, honestly, of of all these things, whether you're a kid or you're a pro or whatever, is the best part for us. And and when I was with Mike and we were trying to, the pro surfing thing was kind of becoming a reality. The money had nothing to do with it. Yeah. It was like, I just want to go surf that wave. I can live my dream. Yeah, right. I just want to, like, this is a vehicle to get me to that break that <laughs> right. I've been wanting to go to my whole life. You're telling me somebody's going to pay me to go do that? I'm in. And I'll be the only guy in the lineup for 40 minutes? <laughs> with four of the guys. <laughs> I am in. Call me in, you know? And so that was um, that was our purely our motivation. And, and what I think kids benefit out of surfing, um, just like they do any sport, is just the socialization and the travel and because right. you, you weren't traveling, you weren't traveling in luxury. You were traveling no, to the economy we were, at that point, right? Yeah. No, we were we were just scraping, sharing rooms, sharing rental cars, fighting with each other. All <laughs> you know, it was it was it was good times, you know, and 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 parties and uh, tears and just you know, it was you're living a life together. Yeah, you're yeah. living the whole thing, and you're going through these struggles, and you're growing up, and you're missing home. And when I was doing it, I mean, the world was still big. Yeah. You know, I remember. It's tough to get around. I remember being in Western Australia and trying to call my girlfriend from there, and it was like I had to go pay to like some graveyard where there was a payphone, and yeah. and it was just like, I mean, the world was so big then. I, I lived in Japan in 1991. It yeah. was you know you had to find the green phones, totally. and figure out how to how much money you needed. Yeah, and, you know, or you call and collect and be like. I'm okay, but then I'll be home. <laughs> you hang up before they accept the call. That's awesome. You know, I was like, hey, I made it, I'm home. Yeah. Whatever, but it was like, and, and you... Yeah, because like, they have to accept the call and you had an open line for that period to, of time. I mean... The, for the children that don't remember pay right, phones. pay phones and you had to call what a collect call was, you have no idea. But I mean, it was... the You were lonely. Oh, yeah. Let me just tell you, when you were in, in Margaret River, there was nothing. You know, so Margaret River is the is Western Australia. Right. So if you're listening, if you're not in Australia, there are Australians listening. Hmm. From the U.S. to Western Australia is about as far as you can go, and yeah, and, and that's halfway around the world. Right. It's like it's basically it, like there in South Africa, which is on the other side of the Indian Ocean. Right. You know, they're staring at each other. Right. Um, those are the two furthest reaches, and you, if you really look at that corner of the globe, it's the least populated corner of the globe. Right. This, you know, Perth is the country. only yeah. major city on the west coast of Australia. Two million people or something. Yeah. yeah. You know, you go way up in the corner there, you've got India and everything. But but then, you know, you go across the ocean, you've got Durban and you've got Cape Town and right. not much in between. Um, big open ocean. Big open ocean. Jurassic Park as far as wildlife. You know, oh, just sharks, big sharks just galore. And they like to eat people down they, there for some yeah. reason. And, every um, time I surf Gracetown, you know, Quarum Up Bay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like God. every time. I always like to surf the lefts. Uh-huh. I swear, every time I surf there, there's always somebody gets hit like within a week or two. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I must leave some good smells in the water or something. It's, it's well, And that's a it, heavy wave too. You that's, just yeah. don't hear about them all, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like you hear the stories of Durban before they put the shark nets in. There was like an attack a week right. back then. It's like and, Florida. And, and uh yeah it's just it's it's just crazy and and um again you know you, you you go to these places and it's it's back then it was you were a long way from home yeah and home just felt so far away yeah. and and the world was smaller and i just laugh now because it's like you know you could sit there and jump on instagram and and or FaceTime. Yeah. And it's like well even getting on a plane i'm going to i mean tomorrow morning i leave for beijing i'll be home on monday yeah 
that's just like what yeah you know never it's so fast stuff. yeah and um i don't know how you do that with your sleep patterns but drugs it, it's it's just <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just crazy you know but it that honestly was what motivated us was to go see the world and that was all the best education you can get and you're doing it in a really fun way i mean you're you're seeing the world through surf, which is a great lens to view the world. Yeah, and that, like, to that point, I think what's was really the best part, and and what I really even to this day try to do, and I think this is kind of what, somewhat what is cool about Airbnb and all these things, is that when you're not in those hermetically sealed travel package deals, <laughs> right. you know, you're literally traveling not to. When you go stuff, stay yeah. with people who live there, and you get to understand what their migration patterns are, right. and, and what you know where they vacation, and then you you know you figure how out they through the, yeah, how they see the world, yeah. how their view of the world, like that's how you learn. You right. know, if you're just gonna go stay in the hotel, order room service, go do your thing, like that's not traveling. That's tourist. I call it being a tourist. Yeah, yeah. and and so what was cool about the experiences that we got to have was that, you know, we went and lived with people you know, homestays who, who, and, yeah. who were there and, and they came and experienced um, this place and, and did it, you know? And, and think about that. I mean, the, the, I think what, so I do that a lot in my work because I work with small business owners wherever I go. And mm -hmm. like one of my favorite questions is they say, well, what do you want to eat? And I said, I don't know. Like, what's the best food where we are? Like, yeah. I want to know what you like to eat. What's your go-to? That's why I'm here. Yeah. Like, I'm not yeah. here to eat hamburgers. I want to yeah. know what you want to eat. Yeah. And sometimes in China, that's very interesting. But I think, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, um, but the, like, I think the cool thing is when you do that and somebody, when you, when you accept the gift of staying in somebody's home mm -hmm. and then somebody, that person comes to visit you, I feel like when people come to visit us here, I'm more excited about them coming here so they can stay with me so I can show them what I do. Right. As, almost as much as I get excited when they show me how they live. Because oh, yeah. you start, it's that exchange, right? It's that value to value. Yeah. It's not like you're trying to sell somebody something, but it's just like, hey, you gave me all this. I want to give you something back because no. that's yeah. how we create yeah. relationships. Well, I, that to me, honestly, is the delicious part of life, right? Right. Is just connecting with humans. Right. And sharing stories, sharing thoughts, sharing your vision, sharing your impression, right? And and hopefully learning something from them that maybe alters your perception of whatever right. it is. And and there's nothing better than learning something new by interacting with somebody. And and yeah. and that's the beauty of it all. And and if if your mission in life is just to be heard, um, <laughs> then you Boring. know I weep for you. Right. It's, well, and I think like. Totally. You know, this movie we're doing right now called Same God is all about how do you build common ground and how do we hear each other in yeah. this age of social media. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the great thing about being a traveler is you learn really quickly. Um, most people don't want to hear what you have to say. Mm -hmm. You're there to listen and understand and observe. And, you know, and, and you may have a chance. Ask. You may yeah. have a chance to, they may ask you what you think about something. Right. Like, especially these days, they may ask you yeah. about our president. But right, the, uh, exactly. Like, what's wrong with you people? What do you think? Why are they doing that? <laughs> but, but I think, you know, but I think the, the, the which forces you to, 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 to kind of, what I do like about that question is, whatever the question is, even if it's something difficult to answer, is it forces you to approach it from their perspective. As uh -huh. as it, it forces you to say, well, wait a minute, why are they asking me that? Right. Why, why are they asking me that way? Yeah. And and it forces you to find common ground rather than focus on what divides you. Rather yeah. than focus on how we're different as tribes. Yeah. How are we, how, when I'm living in your house, how are we the same person? And you, you know, it, it's so funny you say that too, because when you get that question, it's no different right now 
um, and it probably wasn't that long ago with your kids, but like my 13 year old, he's just starting to ask all these questions. Well, dad, why, why is that person saying that on right. the news? And right. why are they saying, you know, we just came from a campaign season. So he's looking at all the ads, you know, like, well, why do they say that this person does that? And you're like, I don't want to be short with them because yeah. these are long answers, you yeah. know, to give him like the full breadth. It's like, you really got to kind of, um, you got to step back to your point. It's like, like, do you really want the real answer here? Right. I, I, I would love to give you my short, like, just condensed version so I can get on with the Sports Center or whatever it is. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. But, and and that's why I, I struggle, <laughs> you know, because you want to be, um, when that window's open, right. when that window is, and somebody gives you, especially a teenager, when a right. teenager gives you that little window where you can actually impact their life, you've got to take it. And, and that's, uh, as a parent, I, I'm trying not to fail. You know, no, well, it's it's and, and I, but I think to your point, like w- one of the things that I discovered was when they ask you that question, it's fun sometimes to answer with a question. Right? Why are they saying this about this candidate? <laughs> who's paying for this? You know, who do you yeah. think's paying for this ad? Why do you think they would yeah. pose it this way? Do you think they're trying to put this person in the best light, or do you think they're trying to <laughs> right. you know dump on this guy? Yeah, I think those are all. I mean, and and the great thing about when you put the question back on them is then they have to process it and it's not just an answer, right? Yeah. It's, it's, that's the fun of it. That's the yeah. fun of having kids. Although yeah. sometimes you don't have all day, so you got to kind of get to No, the and that's the part you just kind of go, gosh darn, I, and you you know, you <laughs> come back and you get in your car later and you're like, damn it, I should have gone a little more deep on that <laughs> really one. You know, like, one uh, uh, because it's like, there's that, well, I forget that quote and who said it, but they're like, the teenager is like the clam, right? Like they're, they're, they I only do. open their mouth like tiny little bit, you get that little teeny view of the pearl and that's the only time they can you know, they're willing to let you in, you know? Uh, so I, I coached soccer for um, for our younger son, and I played it in college. And the thing that I realized was, I think boys, it's a lot like Charlie Brown, where the kids are sitting there, and, and all the parents are saying is, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, like the, doesn't yeah. matter what dad... That's what we are, right? a teenager. Yeah, they I'm can't right hear a word out of our mouths. Yeah. We think we're talking to them, but they're not listening. <laughs> and I realized that when I was doing something, if I was moving with the kids... Then they could. Ask, then they would ask me questions. Then they could hear me. Yeah. And so, like the fun thing about uh, we did. I'm, That's I'm big, interesting. I'm a big fan of Dutch soccer, which is all about um, practicing through play, like three on three, short sided games, making nice. space, opening space, yeah, playing space. Yeah. And um, and the great thing about doing that with kids is they they don't know that they're practicing. They think they're having all these fun games. Yeah. And so I would play with them to teach them to talk. You know, part of it was getting them to talk to each other while they're doing these activities. Playing the game, yeah. Because that's how you ultimately play well. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the thing that I discovered was that the kids would, when you were doing that, when you're playing with them or when you're, surf, when you're in the lineup with them, mm-hmm. they'll talk about anything because they don't think you can hear them. Yeah. Because you're just the want, 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 right? And all oh. of a sudden I'm sitting there like in junior high and high school and I'm hearing all kinds of things that I shouldn't be hearing. Yeah. And so you have to kind of be like Winston Churchill in World War II where you're like, I'm not going to act on that because you know, they're going <laughs> to yeah, realize exactly. I can hear what they're saying right now. I don't want to blow this right now. I'm gathering too much intel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll save this for my wife. Yeah, yeah. that's hilarious. <laughs> it is. It's so, so classic. It, it's pretty funny, you know, like uh, the being a parent, it's a, uh, I, I love it. It's, you know, it's challenging, obviously, but you're, you're always just sort of second guessing yourself. And you know, especially after just losing my dad, yeah. you know, you're just like, you're like, Oh my God. You know, he gave, I, I was so lucky, you know, and today 
you know, you, you feel like sometimes you have to apologize if you have good parents. Right. You know they, what I mean? It's like, most of the stories are about horrific oh, parents. Oh, I'm sorry. I had a good parent. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, but I'm not going to apologize. My parents, I'm so happy and so fortunate and I'm so appreciative of what they did. And they worked their freaking butts off to give us. And, and it wasn't like they gave us a, the, their biggest thing to me, obviously, was that location right you know what i mean like that decision of my dad's to be like no we are doing this well can you imagine if you had grown so, up yeah. 10 miles inland like yeah. your life would be totally, would be different, totally different life you yeah. know like that little decision right there that he made um was was life-altering and it's funny because you know my wife and i there was a period where my my parents were really trying to get me to stop surfing right when i was starting to get serious about it they were really getting concerned when was that uh well like how was, old were you it was ninth grade Okay. You know, so freshman in high school. I'm were there going surf to all the teams contests. in the high schools at that time? Yeah, there was. There okay. were surf, con- you know, so we had the high school surf team and the whole deal. Where'd you go to high school? I went to Laguna. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. So LBHS. Uh, yeah. And um, so you were an artist back I then. I was an artist. Yeah. It, it was such a fun school. It was, you know, you got the, the people don't understand. Like, I was a freshman. Let's see. I was a freshman. No, I, I dream. My kids went there. I. If I could have reincarnated, if I could come yeah. back, I want to go to high school at LBHS. Yeah. I mean, in 1982, we're talking like I was a freshman, and I I was telling somebody this the other day. I'm like, that was like the coolest. Like MTV was brand new. Yeah. You know what I mean it was like fast times, punk rock. High. Yeah. Yeah. Fast times, punk rock, all this. Like it was such a new deal and granted like the cafeteria still had the whole 70s vibe because oh, we were in this full hangover yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and half the student population was like you know the, the seniors were all hippies still you know yeah, like yeah, they yeah. were there in the 70s you know yeah. it was like especially in laguna yeah in laguna it was it was still this hangover you know yeah. um and so it was such a fascinating time because it was like a John Hughes movie where right. it was like, okay, there's the hippies, there's the punkers, there's the rockabillies, you know. In, there's the jocks. There's the jocks, there's the whatever, you know. But everybody kind of got along. It's a still a small school. But yeah. It's still, yeah, but it was still that thing and it was it, it was pretty hilarious. And then we had our little surf tribe and, and we were small unit, but um, it was fun and they were, it, it was an exciting time and. You know, Laguna played a pretty pivotal role in the growth of the industry and stuff. Like right. When, a lot of brands came You know, it was Laguna. like Ian and those guys, but like Michael Thompson moved into town. He started Gotcha and Mark Price and these guys. And that was a huge thing. And then Jack Denny. You, you got know, Quicksilver. Yeah, them. you got Bob yeah. McKnight. Yeah. McKnight and Quicksilver. The whole deal. And, you know, you go back to the the Hobies and all those guys that were. Yeah, if you go back in time, you go you go Tom Mori. Yeah. Boogie board. You all got, those guys. You yeah. Got, yeah. Hobie Alter. Yeah. It was just, um, it was, it was a cool place to be. And um, and it was and it was a fun time in Laguna. Like, I, I hate to say it, then it was just you know our neighbors were plumbers, electricians. You awesome. know, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't as well, fancy it, as it is today. It's not like today. Like the sad part of the neighborhood where I grew up is you know you see a lot of the homes, especially the ones that are on the cliff and they're unoccupied. Se- second homes. Pe- yeah. People buy them as investment properties because they're going to go up in value yeah. and, and not fall back. You know, or some corporation owns it or something like that. Yeah. And and um, almost the. I mean that if you look at the coast. Yeah. There's not a lot of coastal homes these days right. that are still lived in lived regularly. In. Yeah. Right. And so you know I think what what's nice is that our house gets use. Yeah. You know, we're still up there looking. My wife and I will go over and drive over just to go check out the sunset. Still, you well, know, and we I, in- I see your photos on, on yeah. Facebook, right? And but but and I saw your pictures of your dad. And obviously, there's a lot of you know a lot a lot of good things going on there. But I, I also think you know that is 
it's not just a, it's not just valuable real estate because of the dollar value. It's it's valuable because do you actually do you, do you get it? Like are you are you taking advantage of it? Right. Are you enjoying the sunsets every day? Are you getting in yeah. the water once a day? What are you doing with yeah. it? You know. Yeah, and that's where you know you look at our friends down here, Faber and Slide Dog and all these guys, and it's like they do whatever it takes to stay close to where they can walk to the beach. Right. You know, and um, they do what they got to do, and 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 that that that's a beautiful thing you know and that was like what my dad gave us was like hey you guys are going to be here and and i have these friends who you know they're very fortunate very successful i can't afford my parents neighborhood um but they, they I, I, don't, do, I don't think i can afford your parents yeah it's a, it's yeah. A, it's not anymore and so <laughs> yeah. but the, these guys have done a really good job they have two little kids they're they bought a house right down the street from where my mom's house is and I see their kids out in the street where my brother and I used to play, and I'm just like so stoked to see them outside, yeah, yeah. just doing their deal. I'm just like, that there's, is it. I and go, there's you a have good... no idea how much you, you, how stoked I am for these kids and what they have and what you're giving them. And it's like, you know, and they know that because they, the dad grew up in the same neighborhood, and he knows. Oh, cool. He's just like, if I can give this to him, I'm giving it to him. Right. Even yeah. though you have to sacrifice, and even yeah, though it's not easy, a lot. Yeah. yeah. And and um, and so it's. You know, it's it's worth it. That location thing, it's it's worth it. And you know, again, I I wish, and it's again, it's one of the big things. Things gives me so much angst. My son doesn't really surf. You know, I drag him out there every once in a while. But we live 15 minutes inland. His life is so different from mine. Right. And that you know, but he's such a unique little kid, and he's so smart and so fascinating. And he, you know, he's gonna double. He's 13. He's going to be a double black belt pretty soon. He's already wow. getting paid to instruct. Wow. You know? And so... Um, he's find, finding his own path. He's finding his own path. He's got great friends. And my wife and I are just like, we can't move. Like, yeah. look, if we move, then he will... You know, it's like, we this don't is, know... Yeah. You know? And it's like, you don't want to upset the apple cart there. Well, also, you, you can't live your kid's life. I mean, they no, ultimately yeah. have to find their own path. And, yeah. and the, you know, the, the cool thing... I think the coolest thing is when your kids find discover something... That yep. helps them become who they're meant to become, and that and, that, and that's it. You know, and we, we touched on it earlier. It's just like finding those friends who are going to be those, push them in the right direction. Um, Challenge. Them. I think yeah. the other big thing, you know, that I think is a huge one, um, and I don't think we talk about it enough in society, really. But it's just that finding those role models. Mm. You know, I think. Um, you know, there's there's definitely something to be said. I think of the millennial generation; they really get it in terms of how valuable internships are now. Mm-mm-mm. Because yeah, everyone do, everyone does them now. Yeah. yeah, internships are so much. It's it's the fast track, right. right, into something, and and you know. But I think it also helps you discover what you want to do. Right. I mean, I did internships. I worked in Congress. I worked for a couple of think tanks. I mean, I did. There were all these things that on paper I was like, "That's what I want to do," yeah. and then. What I discovered when I went when I actually did those things was obviously it's not what you think it's going to be. Right. Kind of like even like working right. as a surfer, you're like, yeah. you think it's going to be this, and it's you know it's yeah everything's nothing's what you think it's going to be. Right. And certain things there's a threshold where you're like I don't think I could do this. Right. You know. But and then there's you, other but, times you're like this is it. Either way though, you gain skills right. and you gain knowledge for taking that step and taking that journey. And, you know, I've had so many jobs and, and each one of them has, has served a purpose. Right. And, and, and that's just, that's part of the thing. And I think when we talked earlier about transaction costs and the value of a, you know, education and what you're doing, it's like, 
there is some what's so unique in this information age yeah is that you're so empowered like you watch how your kids learn like I watch how my younger kids learn compared to my older kids. Right. My younger kids don't wonder anything because right. you don't have to wonder anymore. You just go on YouTube and Google it. <laughs> right, right. And they'll show you some video how to get it done. Right. And they do something and they get it done. Right. And, well, and our generation will still wonder and then somebody will be like, well, you can look this up on YouTube exactly. or Google. <laughs> yeah, your kids are going, Dad. You know, we're the ones like trying to set the VCR at our 12. There was a guy doing this, this, um, this, new stain on our deck which turns out you're supposed to put a very thin layer on and then wipe it off uh-huh. and he was doing like the old ways where you would layer on varnish uh-huh. and, and I came home and it was like it looked like somebody put goop all over our deck and I was I said I said to him I said did you did you happen to like do any research on this before you did it and the guy's like well no I just thought and I was like well, look, and I just literally went, I went to YouTube right because my to YouTube. kids taught me this. I was yeah, like, just, totally. if you go to YouTube, it shows exactly how to do it. Totally. And then, you know, but yeah. that's our generation, you know, that's the diff, that's the gap, right? No, it is. Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, just before I came here, I shaped my first surfboard in 20 years because I used to shape boards when I lived in, I lived in San Luis Obispo for a long time. And I was like, when you, I was, were you going to college up there? I, I went, yeah, I went to school. That was when I went back to school. It was after my pro career and everything okay. like that. Um, but I lived there for five years. And What's that? Were you living with Parmenter? Yeah, that's when I lived with Parmenter. Oh, cool. And so, but, you know, Parmenter, I lived with him for a while, but then he married Rail's son and moved to Hawaii. Right, right. And so they kept their house, so they, they would come stay for months at a time. But for the most part, he was, he was only there half the time. So oh, I had cool. a shaping room wow. in my backyard, which, wow. you know, my shaping room was his. Were you shaping Aleutian juice or were you shaping something? I was just shaping my own label, yeah, but yeah. using all his templates. <laughs> Morrow so, juice? Yeah, exactly. It was, uh, it was, it was unbelievable. You know, it's such a beautiful place to live up there. And I and visited up there with Kango one time. We went, um, it was after, I think after Rel had died and uh, he was living back in San Luis Obispo a lot. And yeah. We visited up at his place at, up there. Yeah, yeah, that was the Lazy White Cap. That's where I live. Oh, we called wow. it the Lazy White cool. Cap, that little really white clapboard cool house. They yeah. tore it down, unfortunately. Oh, no. Yeah, it was such a... That place, you know, it was very Morning of the Earth yeah. vibe. Very, very cottagey. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, shaping barn in the backyard and and honestly, it was funny because I was too young to see Morning of the Earth when Morning of the Earth came out. But Dave turned me on to that when I was there, living there. And so that was really like that movie and Free Ride were sort of my anthem for those years that I lived there. Wow. And I mean, I could I have that song stuck in my head. I'm going to glass the lyrics to Simple Ben in my little board that I shaped today. You oh, know? man. It's just like it's. It, Are you taking orders? No, not yet. <laughs> okay. Not yet. I will let you know if that happens. But um, I I was sweating so bad in there today. It was so funny. I was like, but and I was so nervous last night. Like, I couldn't sleep because I was so nervous about like, gosh, it's been 20 years since I've done this. And I was looking at YouTube videos going, okay, I got to make sure I'm going to do the rail pass right and whatever. And it was so funny, you know, and you, it's like riding a bike, but um, but you want to get it right. You don't I want to get it right. It yeah, yeah, you don't want to screw up a blank. And, and you know. The short end of this thing is like today, the blanks are so close tolerance, anything will float. You can glass a blank and it'll work. But yeah. Um, so, so what did you end up shaping? I made like a little um, fish, a 5'8", uh, like little rocket fish. It was, it was modeled off a Mike Henson board that, um, oh, yeah. that he made uh, I've I've called the Black Knight. Okay, yeah, I know the Black Knight. So yeah. the Black Knight, he made me a Black Knight like, gosh, 10 years ago. And the thing has lasted forever. Twin and, fin? And it's, it's a quad. Okay. And... Um, and it's just on its last legs. Things yellow as ever, and yeah, yeah. and and it it 
did made a good run, but I left it in my car a couple too many times, and you can't do that with epoxy, and it's it's dead. Bubbled I'm up. like, yeah. I'm like, well, I'm just gonna have a go make one of these things, and um, so that was the first one, and oh, then cool. um, I, I my plan, I just have a couple holes in my quiver. I've been, you know, when I stopped working for WSL in August, it was like. I'm going to surf my freaking brains out right now. Yeah, yeah. I've got, and it's been a great year for it, surf. And October, there was not one flat day. Yeah. Like, it was pumping the entire month of October. I think I surfed 29 out of 31 days or something. Wow. And um, so... For our listeners, Chris is pretty ripped right now. He's... he's yeah, I was like... I, it, it was... it was, You know, I was telling my wife, I'm like, I just... It feels so good to be healthy. Because yeah. I was... You understand, I was driving three hours a day to Santa Monica from Mission Viejo. So, so so real so let's take this journey. So you were pro surfing, you were on OP team with Tom Curran. I went that. I I did that. Then I was a Billabong rep for a while. Okay. Um for a couple years, and that was one of the earliest sort of lessons in life for me because, you know, at the time Bob Hurley owned Billabong. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. So he owned it. And which and, he later started Hurley. Right. He later started Hurley. Bob was fantastic guy, and, and he's well, is a fantastic guy. He's so nice, and he was. I was you just know, with Pat. They, I saw Pat O'Connell last weekend, and uh, we were talking. We were yeah. talking Hurley a little bit, but yeah. So and keep so, going. so he, um, they hired me. I was like 22, 22 or twenty three, and I was the Orange County rep for Billabong. Billabong back Whoa. then was like mainly trunks and tees. They were just getting into the cut and sew thing, and yeah. it was kind of like a. Um, and my territory was rip curl down in San Clemente, right by Trestles, all yep. the way to the Santa Monica Freeway to the Arizona border, Whoa. which is a huge territory. I had like 70-something accounts. So you were making and like $30 million a year back I then. was making <laughs> no, really good money, sure but my busy. life, and this was one of those things where it taught me very early in life. Like, you got to understand, I came right off the world tour. And then you're driving your butt And out. then I was spending eight hours a day on the freeway. And they were building the carpool lanes back then, so the freeways were a shit show. Yeah. It was freaking horrible. What were you driving? I was driving like a Toyota pickup truck with a shell on the back. So, so I had my, my my No, it was it was, was it automatic. It was an automatic. Um, but you know, I'd be driving a Chino, whatever. And I enjoyed it because I enjoyed what I was learning. Like like the the deal and the industry. The industry and it was like crash course and business and you know, Bob and all the people there were so awesome. But about a year and a half in, I, I remember I pulled up to Salt Creek to look at the waves, and I was living with Pat O'Connell at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was afternoon, and you know how when you drive around all day, you're just cooked? Yeah. The waves were perfect. The waves were so good at Salt Creek. And I'm looking down there, and I'm like, I don't have the energy to go out. Like, oh, I couldn't surf, right? Yeah. And that may be the worst feeling. It's the worst feeling. And so, um, and then I moved into this big house in San Clemente and was, you know, materialistically, you know, all my friends were just getting out of college and they're looking at me going, wow, you're pulling You've up. done it dude. all. Yeah. 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 You, you got a killer deal. You making good pad, money. You got the yeah. deal. And, and I didn't go to school. Right. Like at this point I was like, I'm like, yeah, I am. That's cool. But I was freaking miserable. Yeah. And it was like, and it was the earliest thing. And so what triggered me, what was so fascinating for me at the time was the only time I would get my surf mojo on was when Parmenter was shaping my boards. I would drive up to the Central Coast, yeah. hang with Dave for a couple of days. And it was like going to therapy. Oh, he's he like, he's like Mr. Up, Soul Surfer. Just, he would drive me up. We would 
end up scoring someplace by ourselves in yeah. some majestic little place up there. You know, every time lineup was different. And I would get aboard, and I would come home, and I'd be so freaking stoked. And then I would just get Plus into this it's, industrial. it's pumping up there, right? Yeah, pumping. Always overhead. Always a fun wave. And Dave just knows the coast better than anybody, you know? Yeah. And so I was, like, having a midlife crisis at 23 years old going, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And I don't know if you know our friend John O'Connor, but I remember telling him, I'm like, John, I can't do this. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm like... I am not happy. He goes, okay, well, don't make any hasty decisions. He goes, give it three months. And if you still feel the same way, then you know it's real. Well, that's cool. What yeah. great advice. No, it was. It was really good advice. Yeah. And, and Because it's a huge deal. And, and um, I'm like, okay, that sounds good. So that's exactly what I did. I was three more months and I was doing it. But by the third month, you I was knew. like literally blowing off appointments to go yeah. surf and whatever. And... David introduced me to Randy, who owns Moondoggies up in San Luis Obispo. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Randy... It's um, a core shop. Yeah. Super core shop. And Randy asked me how things were going. And I kind of confided in him. I'm just like... Because he, he came with us surfing one day, and I just told him where, how I was feeling. He's like, look, I need a manager up here if you ever want one. You know? And I'm like, I might take you up on that. Yeah. You know? And... Um, Give some space to figure it out. Yeah. And this was earlier, you know, on one of those trips. And... Um, and so when the three months was up, I called Randy. I said, Randy, does that offer still stand? For and he's like, 100%. Oh, wow. I go, okay, cool. I'm, I'm coming up. And he was, you know, and Bob and by that time, Bob and Mike Lesher, who was my boss, they knew something was up because they're like, Chris. Um, we've been getting a couple calls. That <laughs> yeah, you you don't know. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I go, yeah, well, yeah. you know, and they made a bold move at the time because, like, in all reality, they should have got a guy who was married who needed to feed some kids. You know, it was focused. I was yeah. like, yeah, focused. I was not a focused guy at that point, and um, and I'm just like, look, guys, I love you, and I can't thank you enough for this opportunity. But this isn't who I am. Yeah. And and, and it was funny because the guy. Um, Mike Lesher, who was my boss, one of our first appointments when he was introducing me to all the accounts was Braun Houston Stamps. Oh, guy, yeah. Paul, Paul Houston Stamps. Yeah, we surf yeah. with Paul down here a lot. So yeah. Paul Paul was running Newport Surf Company. Yeah. And, you know, Paul's just a legendary guy. Yeah. You know, he was one of those Porto Escondido pioneers and yeah. really cool guy. And he was like, Chris, let me tell you something about repping. He goes, you're either a sales rep or you're not. There's <laughs> Paul, no middle Paul's ground. pretty epic, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Yeah. And I go... Okay, that's good to know, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, at the time I was kind of like, whatever. And he was kind of hippie, you know, dude. And and those guys, it was funny because they were they were always in the rears on payments, like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like they owed Billabong so much money and all that kind of stuff. So Classic. I was like, yeah. I was like, do I trust this guy or not, you know? And and I didn't even. Braun was a tiny little kid then, yeah, you yeah. Know? But um, he was an insulted too. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. and so. Um, Anyway, the, uh, the, the, the story there was when, when I told Mike, I go, remember how when we sat down with Paul and he goes, Chris, you're either a sailor or I go, I'm not a sailor. I don't rep. think I'm doing it. <laughs> I go, I don't think I'm cut out. And it was, a, you know, not that I was, because my numbers were great. Yeah. Increased and did that, but it was more just the fact that. Um, this wasn't your thing. It wasn't my thing, and I was I was still a surfer. I realized, like, I was 23. I was still really too into surfing to do this and not. And, and my territory was 
huge and it just didn't allow me yeah if you had like today if you had a small coastal well so my envy the guy who i was so jealous of was gary clisby because his territory was san diego and his territory had all these little waves in it all his accounts were right on the coast so he was surfing surfing his brains out you know and i'm just like damn it how do i get that how do i get that (laughs) i'm like driving up to venice and stuff i'm like these waves suck flagstaff Yeah, yeah like no this is horrible so um so yeah, that's what got me to the Central Coast, and and it was pretty funny because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I was making one fifth the money. Yeah. But I you I can't even explain to you how happy I was. Thousand times happier. So happy, and I remember one time I was sweeping the curb outside the shop. It was in the fall, sweeping the leaves off the curb, and the little guy who owned the sandwich shop next door was sweeping his end of the curb and the barber shop across the street was sweeping his end of the curb and i was just like we were all like waving and saying hello oh, yeah. to each other. i was just like this is the fucking best great life <laughs> yeah. great life it was just like and i don't know how well you're in a community yeah you to, you're I'd, not killing yourself on a freeway you're living i don't know how to, yeah and it was pretty funny because my friends would come up and stay with me and and i would sort of stop everything when the sun's setting because where i was renting my first place the sun would set in between Bishop's Peak and Madonna Mountain, which are these two just beautiful peaks up there. I'm like, hey, hey, hold on. We got to go out to the driveway and awesome? sit there. That's and they were so just like, awesome. wait, what are, we what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, we're going to watch this. And he's like, dude, you really like it up here, don't you? <laughs> Best show on earth, man. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, I think so. But yeah, so that was, that was, and, and you know, it was, a, it was a great lot to me what it, it was a great lesson to learn then because I didn't have kids and it was that money is not everything. Yeah. And it's it's just like you have to find your meaning. You have one life. You have one life. And if it's not, if you're not doing something that's n- meaningful somewhere in there and, right. and that doesn't, you know, I'm, I get the whole Steve Job, follow your bliss and all that. And I, I believe that to an extent. I think you've got to do your, there's your duties, you know, like sure, you've got to sure. do your duties. If you've got kids, you've got to take care of your family. But you yeah. just, at some point, <clears throat> If it means making a little less so you could spend some time doing something that's meaningful to you, then yeah. do it, yeah. you know, because then your happiness goes that much further through the roof. And it's not all about happiness. It's just about meaning. Right. You know, um, and, you know, you look at I think the reason you're so happy is like your career gives you meaning. Like, look at what you get to do. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, one, it's kind of like you were saying, I mean, you don't get a lot of, no one cares how tired you are when you get to travel around and throw parties and right. do fun stuff. And then there's there's real work that happens too. I mean, we, A lot of it. We're launching a lot of products. We're doing a lot of product planning. There's, there's, I don't take a lot of photos. I was talking with Pete Holmes and Rob Bell one time and they were laughing about how the carefully curated life I show on social media isn't exactly the same as my actual life, right? Yeah, whose is? And Pete was like, you should just, you should just like every 20 minutes one day, just take a photo of whatever you're doing, just take a photo. Like whether you're going to the bathroom, in a board meeting, like whatever, just, he goes, because I think it would be refreshing to people to just see that it's not like surfing Bali and you know, whatever. And you know, and that's honestly, people like yourself who are really successful and, and, and productive and the guys like my guys like me we sit there and go how do you do it how do you make how do you you know there's a lot there's an entire industry of people like yourself giving us tips on what your daily routine is like and to his point that's what he's getting at he's like show me how you do it what do you really do every day yeah yeah yeah. yeah, i get that this is who you hang with and this is the party and there's the lights and this and that and that's cool but there is something to that and you know 
I think he's right. I think your listeners would be stoked to know what your daily routine. You look at Tim Ferriss and what his success is, and it's just like it's all about all he's doing is talking. It's how he ticks and how his heroes tick. That's all what his whole thing is kind of about. Right. And granted, that's an industry, and there's tons of people doing it, but everybody has a different story. Well, and, you know, when we moved here, by the time we had gotten here, we were on the— there was a rough turnaround at the beginning of moving here where we lived in a two-bedroom condo and, you know, mm. things were a little sketchy and then it, it worked itself out pretty quickly. Um, so not long after we moved to Laguna, about, you know, 16, 17 years ago, things got a lot better a lot pretty quickly and, uh, and life was, was... We lived on Brook Street, had a yeah. big, nice pad and, you know, yeah. really, really... We, it was like the frat house down there. Yeah. Which is why we don't live on Brook Street anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it was like... We're hiding I want to get in the canyon now. I don't want everyone stopping by to go to the bird at, you know, 11 <laughs> Total, p.m. Oh, my God. Well, yeah. You know, it's such a fun little community. But the... Um, we had a half pipe in the backyard. It was just tons of fun. But the... Um, the, the thing that... It, what she always found kind of funny is I'd be traveling, we're working hard, we're launching new markets. We actually are doing a lot. Mm-hmm. And and at the beginning, I mean, we're doing everything. You know, you're yeah. opening yeah. cans, you're, ta- you're selling it, you're doing, you're doing the whole thing. And when I wasn't traveling, I was home. Mm-hmm. Because before that, when we lived in the Bay Area, I was putting 50,000 miles a year on a car, just like you yeah. were, you know, in a different industry, yeah. but same idea. Never home. And... You know, so when we got here and I was home when I was home, like when I wasn't on the road, I was home. Yeah. Um, I was surfing. I was so happy that I could walk to the beach and I was so like, like a grom, like anytime there was anything, I'd be in the water or I just, I still am. Like I was right. just, I was just kicking around today, body surfing two yeah. foot waves, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. Cause it's just. Water's still warm. Yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, um, and anyway, she was. She was at the LSN, you know, Laguna Surf and Sport, great little shop where we know the guys. And I think um, Snips used to work there, mm-hmm. actually. Totally. Um, yep. But the, uh, so she goes in there one day and I'm out traveling, you know, busting my butt doing something. And the young guys in the shop are like, oh, I just want to, I just want a job like, like you're, you're like David sometime where I can just surf. And, do, and then she's like, <laughs> he does not just surf. You yeah, know? Totally. <laughs> that's like, that's the segment. It just you seems see crazy. Like he just goes and parties <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah. and then he like opens a couple cans and <laughs> yeah, drinks some stuff. Yeah, and then that's like job. watches it roll in and then buys another house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Furthest thing from the truth, obviously. Oh my but, God. The, uh, but I think to your point, like, right. It's, it's, what everyone's struggling to figure out and and we've all we've you know is how do you how do you find that thing and it's not about the money it's not it's really about you only get one day at a time you're Mm -hmm. only here right now like how do you create that life where whether it's with your kids at taekwondo or whether it's Mm -hmm. living up in malibu surfing Mm -hmm. you know perfect perfect you know rights off off of topanga like how do you? It's it's how do you? How did you figure out that journey? And I think to your point, like you got to try a bunch of different things, and you and you have to be honest with yourself and say, okay, the money's good. Yeah, I like the people. But this isn't me. I I think for me the thing was yeah it was it it's um I've always kind of followed my heart and and that was the the funny thing you know I grew up in a very conservative family like a, a number five of the six yeah. And like I said, dad went to Yale, Yeah, you know, and was in the Navy, my brother, yeah, Navy, my brother went to Oxford and then Columbia and my other older brother went to Stanford. So when I was like, I'm going to be a surfer, they're like, what the fuck? 
how does yeah, yeah. how does that fit in yeah, this world? Yeah, like, yeah. Karen, this is a nine one one thing. You know? <laughs> and they literally, um, you know, they sent me to a private school in tenth grade. I got a C on my report card um, my freshman year, and they used that as sort of like, well, you're slipping, and yeah. um, we're going to send you over to this private school, and and um, it was St. Margaret's. I was oh, the yeah, first class. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I, we were the very first class. And San Juan, going yeah. south, going to San Juan. And, you know, the funny thing, everything happens for a reason. I met, I sat at the same table, just like a table like this, about with this, this girl who was like the smarmy little, you know, bad girl, rebel chick who was, um, who was there. And she became one of my best friends. We had a crew of about six or eight people. We ate lunch every day. That girl is now my wife. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, <laughs> worked out. you know, it was just like, and my parents were like, well, see, you would have never met your wife if that didn't happen, <laughs> yeah. you know? Because I was like, yeah, well, you were trying to get me to quit serving. You know, just like everything happens for a reason kind of thing. But, um, she, you know, we went, my wife, we hung out every day. We ate lunch every day and we were in the same class. And so it was kind of funny because she got married and she had her two older boy, like the two older boys. And, and I didn't see her the whole time I was traveling and off doing things. I didn't see her for like a dozen years. And then we reconnected and, um, it was just one of those things where when you know somebody like we did, yeah. it was like, so anyway, you know, when <laughs> you we picked up, immediately, yeah, yeah, it was, you didn't have to get to know each other. It was just like, we clicked. Um, but that, that, that was one of those things where I've just always trusted um, a little bit of my heart leading things in the right direction and, and, and finding that meaning. And, and, you know, obviously as you get older, um, you have more responsibility, so it's not all about you. Right. And so you just got to blend the two. Fortunately, I've been one, you know, I've been lucky enough to where um, my parents, you know, my dad, like I said, he was a depression baby and my mom was very much, they were so on the same page. They so were such good role models to show what a good marriage looked like. Sure. And how to be a team and how to live within your means. You know, we had that house, but we did not get what we wanted. Like, right. what, like the kids in the neighborhood, we, we, you know, it was like, we weren't the ones who got a new bike and got whatever it was right. like, that didn't happen. We, it was like, no. And it was like, dad, can we get a pool? That's your pool, you know, whatever, you know, it was like, and it was, it, it, there wasn't, you know, a lot of stuff under the tree or anything like that, where you were just like shiny objects. It was like, no, my, my dad, my parents were like, no, we're going to take you skiing. Right. That's your Christmas present. Real experiences. Yeah. yeah. And, and so they were very experiential and my, my parents like to, to the credit, like, they traveled all over the world and they left us behind. They would leave sitters, but you know, that was part of their whole thing for a successful marriage. And I don't blame them. Six kids, they got to get away. Yeah. They would go to Europe a couple times a year and do their thing. And, and my mom, she has a spreadsheet that she just sent me the other day. And it's all of my parents' trips from the time they got married oh, wow. to when my dad passed away. And it was something like 177 trips. Oh, that's you know, so right. And like yeah. dates and where they went and everything. And my dad, his pastime, honestly, like his, his hobby was planning those trips. Oh, cool. You know, so he would come home and then when he was at home, he would just sit in his little same chair every night and just be plotting the trip for his wow. next one. You know, that was his deal. You that's know? rad. And, you know, there's not a spot in the world they didn't go. Yeah. You know, and, and, and they did it together. So, um, 
that was something that I don't think I'm going to be able to give my wife that. <laughs> but, but you can give, you, but you do it in your own way. Yeah, 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 we do, we do what we can. And and it was funny. I made my son and my daughter. They just their birthdays are pretty close to each other. I made them both a little video. Um, edited a little video for them of their birthday of uh, for their birthdays, and it was like I went back and I, I just got some new phones and stuff. So I was like, I'm like, well, gosh, I have all the cell phone footage of like when they're born and like yeah. And I made these little this little compilation, and I get teary eyed watching it. It was like a nine minute video for each kid, and it's their life. And I'm like, they're pretty freaking lucky. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, like, yeah. My wife and I was showing it to my wife, and she goes. They have way better childhood. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I always say that about, with my kids. I'm like, when I, if, I, if we get to come back, I want to, I want to come back as my kids. Yeah, they exactly. It's gig. like they're, they're they're not hurting, and that and which is good because there's times when I feel like, oh man, you know, I I see my kid playing a video game, and I'm super tired at the end of the day. I'm like, I should go outside and throw the football with him. And there's times when I do, but then there's times when I don't. It's okay. Yeah. You know, and you, it's, you know, you kill yourself sometimes, but. No, but I think that's, that's also part of this age. I mean, the kids yeah. want to play video games and they also want to do things with their parents, but it's, you know, if, if you made them quit the video game every time, they might stop, start hating football. Too. Right. Yeah. No, I know. And they, and they, you know, they, they really do. That's where they connect. Yeah. You know, we went to the park and did whatever. It's like, they're online with their buddies. Like, yeah. so. I struggle with that. Um, I think every parent does who has their kids playing Fortnite or whatever these days. But yeah, right, right. Um, you know, it's all in moderation. If 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 I saw him slipping in any way, like his grades or this or that, yes. I'd probably crack down. But it's like when your kids doing the right thing, you're like, all right, well, it's working. I guess I'm not going to upset that one. No, we yeah, we used to limit screen time, and you know, my thing was, look, we live, we sacrifice to live near the beach. We're going to get in the water every day. Yeah, that's part. Of, and my kids love it, and they've. Yeah, embraced it, but that was a big thing for us. So if you're if you're talking to somebody who's you know you've had this great life, you've I mean, not that it's it's far from over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm just saying, like you've you've been a, you've lived in a raised in a beautiful place. You've been become a figured out how to become a pro surfer and make a life traveling the world, riding the west waves. Mm. You got to work in the surf industry, which a lot of people would have killed to work in the surf industry, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't easy. Um, mm-hmm. It was, yeah. Know, especially looking back now, it was like the golden age of right. the surf industry. You went to college. You worked at Surfer Magazine. If you were, if you're talking to your 20 year old self or friends who are 20 year old today, and they're saying, "Hey, look, how do I, how do I create the life that I want to live?" Mm. What would be the What's the advice that you would give them of, of how to how to work your way through that, how to get to where you want to be? Um, I think one of the best things that I, and I tell my kids this, and you know, the thing that encourages me about the young the young generation now, when I'm talking about kids who are 16 and under, 20 and under right now, is that they really. They see something and they really don't let anything hold them back if mm. they want to do it. Right. And I just don't want them to lose that. I think one of the things that I tell my son, so when I get on my son's case or my daughter for that matter, I go, hey, look, just be careful because the biggest companies in the world right now, they're making their money lobbying for your attention. Right. They, they, all they want is you to stare at their screen and right. their channel, right? right? I go, and granted, there's some decent stuff you could consume, and there's a lot of crap. 
but I want to make sure that you're spending time creating something. Oh, wow. And yeah. so my big thing is you can spend some time consumption time, but I want you to spend an equal amount of time being creative. Right. And whether it's writing something down, making a video, doing some little DIY project, cooking with your mom, right. doing whatever, but that's creative. Roll your sleeves because up. Because that's going to... That creative part is where you really kind of flex your mental muscles and everything like that. The right. screen time is really drone time. Right. And granted, it could be entertaining and with your friends and it could be it could be playtime. But I think it's really important. And the thing I encourage people to do is just like get into that creative time. Make sure you understand your consumption time versus your creative time and what you're doing because the creative time is far more valuable. Right, And it's far more meaningful to the world because at the end of the day, there's no evidence that you left this earth if all you did was watch something. If you're just a spectator. Right. But if you're creating something, and this is why I called you to, you know, to sit here and go, hey, tell me what equipment you're using. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. It's like when you're creating something, it doesn't matter what it is. You're leaving something behind. Your kids may never listen to every podcast, but 30 years from now, 50 years from now, when you're gone, they might go... I might go listen to Dad's podcast. Yeah, yeah, or find find a couple that you like. No, yeah. but and, you know the funny thing is they they are listening to it because I think, um, and not everyone, but yeah, but they've both told me that they listen to different ones and and they're in college and they're working hard. And my older son's at a startup. My younger son's in university, so it's not like they have endless amounts of free time. But right, but they both they're both at these seminal points in their life where yeah. they're trying to figure out who am I and what am I going to do. Right and such a such a pivotal time and so these part of what they i think appreciate are these interviews with people who are either on the journey I mean, we're all on the journey right but where are you on the journey and so what are the mistakes yeah yeah what 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 are the things that set you back whatever and it's like yeah i i think look time is so precious and right. it's not a race you know life isn't a race it's like enjoy it but honestly i think one of the things that um I, the other thing I try to tell my son, because I watch this with friends and um, for years I was a horrible eater, you know, especially when I was driving a lot and whatever, you know, my habits were just horrible. And I told, you know, one of the things I told my son, I just go, you know what, the one of the best things in life, I go, if you can just focus on accumulating good habits mm. and slowly getting rid of your bad ones, just <laughs> Life gradually gets a lot better. It's, it's just like, it's exponentially better. <laughs> right, you know what right, I mean? It's right. just like if you just slowly, tiny, get rid of like, just like take your annoying habit, you know, or whatever one of those things that's pestering you and just slowly chip away at it, like your bad ones and just one at a time, you know, yeah. and then build on some good ones. There's, I think there's a best-selling book right now. It's like Atomic, something like that, Habits or something like that. And it's all about how, you just start super minutia small, right? Trying to establish a good habit because if you do something for three weeks straight, it accumulates. It's yeah. it's a habit, right? right? And so, um, and even if it's only for two minutes a day, you right. know, that's I think the point of it. And I haven't read the book, but I'm going to. <laughs> um, it's 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 one of these things where um, you know you get on a roll and and you just start to see progress and I remember there was there's been times when I felt very stuck and in a rut and like what is going on and then there's times when you know you're being productive and you're 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 so busy you're not even paying attention and then you know 
a year or two passes and you look back and you're like, whoa, that's a pretty good track record of stuff that I've just done and I've right. learned a lot along the way and, and I had fun doing it. And, and I, you know, but I did, the reason that happened was because I wasn't, you know, being distracted. And I think, I think the biggest thing that concerns me today is, is that you have um, this entire industry of people trying to distract you. Right. Trying to, trying to tell you how to, how to do it when maybe that's not the thing that you should be doing. Yeah. That, I mean, their, their, their monetization is your attention. Right. And, um, and so it's like, are you going to be a, are you going to be a consumer or a producer? Right. Well, I used to say when my kids were young and living in Laguna and everyone's talking about being sponsored. I used to say to them, do you want to sign the checks on the front or on the back? Yeah, that's exactly. Like you're way it's better great... off. I mean, one, I don't think, I mean, I'm not a spectacular athlete and our family wasn't going to go pro in anything probably. And, and, and so I was just trying to tell them like, look, anyone can start a business. Mm -hmm. Not anyone, not everyone can be a pro athlete. Yeah. And, and, and both are great, but you know, signing the checks on the front is, it can be, can be much more rewarding than, you know, and both are yeah. good, but, but, you, but both sides matter. But it's uh that, that was kind of my point to them was, you know, make something, create something, own something, get Do equity something. in something right. that you're really passionate about. Because, that you did. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny because, um, the one thing I would say to people who are aspiring athletes and everything like that is like, it's, you know, a lot of times you look to heroes and, and I can tell you that your heroes change quickly over time when you right. grow up, right? Right. And my biggest heroes today... Still Sean Cassidy. <laughs> it's really like, it's these guys who are dads. Right. Who are holding it together. Yeah. And they have a job they like. Yeah. They have an intimate relationship with their wife that they enjoy. They have friends who are, you know real and genuine it's not like it's truth, not truth tellers true yeah. yeah just that can confide in them and call them on their bullshit and yeah. and be real um and and they really give as much attention as possible to their children like to me that is the most fulfilling heroic job you can do right um as a parent and and i don't care how good of an athlete you are like that's just playing ball you right. know and that's and Again, it might take you somewhere, you know, um, but it doesn't make you a better person. I'll, I'll you, my favorite part of surfing with my kids growing up was we had junior high surf team, high school surf team. And I think I was a surf coach at some point because somebody didn't show up. You know, it wasn't because I was a great surfer or anything, yeah. but it was just a parent needed to fill in. Yeah. And, you know, getting up early with the kids to go surfing before school, especially coming from Michigan. Yeah, being like this, my kids get to do this, which really was yeah. I get to do this. You're just like, this is how I'm awesome is stoked. this? Yeah, and our yeah. high school surf team, like when we were, you know, when our kids were in Laguna Beach High School, we didn't have the best surf team. I mean, San Clemente was crushing us, Dana yeah. was crushing us. But man, we had the best br breakfast burrito set up on the beach, and yeah. everybody the, was just stoked to be down there. I dude, mean, it's it like awesome. you, your kids were living the dream. Like exactly. you're just going. You guys are living the dream. Well, and, and you know, I played, I did play a lot of soccer growing up. And when I got here, it was like, oh man, there's clubs, there's all this stuff. And I really quickly, really quickly figured out, good, good for people who want to play club soccer, right. good for them. But 
Like I was like, okay, if we're doing club soccer, we're not at the beach on the weekends. Mm-hmm. We're driving all over Southern California. It's and brutal. So, so I told my boys, it's I'm like, brutal. I'm down with AYSO. If you really want to do club, we'll do it. But I think we should do AYSO and like surf team because I think that's like that's the right program <laughs> yeah, for, for totally. our lifestyle. Yeah, and totally. it was awesome. It was so good. That's so funny. Yeah. I remember that was one of the funniest interviews I ever heard was with uh, with Owen Wright and um, and uh, his father and. He was just saying, yeah, you know, my kids, he's got, you know, Tyler Wright's the women's world champion. Yeah, yeah, Wright, you know, like, and Mikey Wright, like just the most talented surf family ever. And he was just like, yeah, I was so anti the sports thing because then they couldn't <laughs> surf because I just wanted to get him in the water. You know? the coast. Yeah. And so it was like, a, so he was like, I did not want them to be playing other sports and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's funny because, um, I mean, I, I think sports are great for kids, you know, that it's, course, again, it's just that course, part of the socialization yeah. thing, you know, but, I, you know, don't even get me started on the club thing. I think it's such a racket. Who are they doing it for? Yeah. Who are they doing it for? And it's like, and you, these people are all like, you get the parents that are just like, oh, my kid's going to get a scholarship and, you know, and I'm like, they're like, and I'm going to save so much money. It's like, how hey, much let me you ask paying? you something. How much are you spending on this club? Seriously. And how much travel are you doing for how many years? Oh, and then yeah. your kid might get something. Well, and, and, are you enjoying this? Does your kid enjoy it? Like, just make uh, sure your priorities are straight because. Well, I would add, like, going to, going to a college for a sport is maybe the worst reason to go to a college. I mean, <sighs> there's congratulations to kids who get scholarships. But, right. But honestly, like, I want my kids to go to college because they want to learn something at that college. Yeah. You know, and, and sports can teach you things and maybe they help you get better classes. But, man, at the end of the day, I'm, I was, I, I think, you know, I played soccer in college for a year and then I realized it was a full time job and it was going to wreck my college experience. Right. Where did you go to school? Uh, Wheaton. It was, okay. a, yeah. it was a Division III NCAA. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't going pro in anything. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, it was, it was, I just, even then it was like, you had practice and you had games like every day of the week and in the off season you were, and I was just like, why am I doing this? Yeah. I'm never going pro. I'm not going to play a lot of soccer after college. Like, yeah. And I, I shifted to the newspaper. Transactional and cost, right? Exactly. That's the whole deal. And by the way, intramurals was just as much fun <laughs> yeah, with no practice. Totally. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Right? So. And way more of a social life. <laughs> right. And it was right. like, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. No, no it it's just, fun. The, you know, the sports part is, um, it's just being active and being with those kids. And I think the club thing today, like you said, it just overtakes their Well, you get their kids existence. having they have repetitive stress injuries in like grade school. I mean, it's crazy. Well, but it takes over the parents' lives and everything. And I'm like, yeah. you live here. Yeah. They're only this young once. You just surrendered every weekend of their summer. Right. You know what I mean? To a sport that you won't to care about that, once they grow up. Yeah. They're not going to, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, it's like, Build the life you want. Weigh, weigh the priorities there. Like, just yeah. be realistic. And, and um, you know, that's why my wife, because we our, our number two son was a big soccer player and did the whole club thing. And, yeah. And um, and so we we lived that life. And it was it was pretty brutal because, um, you know, it only takes one bad coach or some bad oh, yeah. tea or something to kind of demotivate them to or something. And and um, he my he he struggled for a little while and and so with our younger batch yeah um we're like hey taekwondo it's awesome yeah two hours a day it's one hour local. you know yeah. what i mean it's right there we don't have to travel they're getting disciplined they're socializing they're learning some really valuable skills yeah. and life you know um if they if they bug us and they want to go do those things then we'll take them but Let's it's not force like, it. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't don't ask, don't tell. 
Exactly. <laughs> we did kung fu here for the same reasons. It's, it's such a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had that when, you know, when I was a kid. It was like, I, I my parents, I, it was funny. I, we, they're like, you guys can all pick a sport. And so we, I had really no say because I was number five. So the older ones pick. And they're like, no, we're doing soccer. And it was ASO. Yeah. But like we, could, we didn't do Little League. You know, because right. like my parents couldn't afford to do soccer and little league, nor did they have the time to take us all around. Exactly. So it was like we had soccer season and that was it. I didn't do basketball. I didn't do baseball. I remember when I got one of the funniest joys of my life actually was when uh, when I was at Surfer was being on the compound fractures down here in the softball. Oh, league. dude, yeah, yeah, <laughs> with Sly and all those guys, the whole crew, yeah, the compound with Frogger yeah. and Faber and those guys and Coach. I had to like, yeah. And coach was so hardcore and I had to like try out for that team, you know, <laughs> and I was, I was like, I was like, I was living my little league fantasy and I was like, I'm going to work so hard to prove to these guys that I can do this. Right. And so I was going to top of the world, getting there, just trying to impress coach, you know, and I'm like in my thirties, you know, <laughs> it's like, but it was like, I was like a little kid. Yeah. And the funniest thing was for all these guys, by the way, coach is the president of electric. Yeah, I mean, you've got all these yeah. guys are doing Carter's he's killing it. Yeah. Running. Gym. And, uh, the funniest thing for me was um, right at the time I was kind of doing the stand-up paddle thing, so my shoulders were kind of buffed out, working, and I just had like it was just magic, like the freaking ball was just leaving the park, you know. <laughs> so like I was like I got I was like number two or three on the team in homers. Oh, dude! And so coach was like, dude, you're batting number three or four, you know, like oh, killer. And I was, we had so much fun, you know. And that was I was. Team Adolfo's. Finally living my, yeah, <laughs> like Little League fantasy at the age of 30. And, you know, that was just, those are. And that's a good crew. Those, those guys little, are Yeah, and those little moments, like, um, the thing I appreciate a lot, and, and I'm sure you, you get this too, is like, you know, your college years are your college years, and you think they're going to last forever or whatever, and those little friends you have, and it's like, yeah. you know, you got to take those moments because every little phase of life you have your little family and your work family. And this is the other thing I always tell people when I, when they talk to me about taking a job, I'm like, what do you think of the people there? Mm. I go, you're marrying those people. You're right. That, that's what you're doing. It, you're marrying that. You're going to spend more time with those people than your actual family, than your actual family. So do you like them? Do you value their opinion? Are they good people? Are right. they doing the right thing? Cause if they're not and you're not, that's gets, ticket to misery. It gets back to association. Well, it, totally. and, it, and it can even be worse. I mean, I've had two two founders of companies that have gone to jail. Wow. For make you know, because startups are pretty wild yeah, westy a lot of times. For sure. And you know, there's a lot of free play in those companies. It's not like a big corporate structure. Yep. And you see people, and both times I didn't even realize exactly what was going on mm -hmm. um, for a lot of weird reasons, but. In retrospect, you know, a lot of what I've learned is I listened to my wife a lot. Like, I didn't listen to my wife as much back then. Mm -hmm. I said, like, yeah, but there's big opportunity. And she'd right. say, but I don't, I'm getting a weird vibe off this yeah, guy. They, women are so good at that. Yeah. You know, they're so intuitive. Um, not to say men aren't, but they just... No, they get it. They, they have a, get They have it. a deeper sense on that. There's just yeah. something about it. And, and yeah, uh, you've got to... We do need to do a better job of listening to them when they when they raise that red flag, right? Because when there's they something do, there usually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's something there, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's interesting. I but I think you're right. It gets back to that association, like when you're a kid, when you're growing up, and it still carries into adulthood. 
who you live live around, who your neighbors are, who you right. work with. I mean, it all matters. It all takes you someplace. It, it 100%. And it's just, um, you know, not that ultimately happiness is fleeting, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where um, there's sort of contentment and satisfaction, all that, but like, you can't feel happy all the time. No. There's a lot too much work to be done. Part of you what know? creates happiness are the times when you're not happy. Right. right? Yeah. And, you know, without the good, without the bad, there's no good. And every job, no matter how glamorous it looks, is just has miserable aspects of it. Of course. It. Like, and, and there's no getting around that. That's um, why it's called work. That's exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, those are those things that I, I tell people, but I go, but if you're doing those miserable things with good people, and if, if I say this, I, I talk a lot about work and play. And I say, look, hard work is always going to be hard work. But if we can make the hard work fun, mm-hmm. yeah, then it doesn't always feel like hard work. Yeah. Right? And exactly. so I think the part of it, when you can build a culture right. and you have people that you enjoy working with, look, you're still going to have to clean the latrines. But yeah. if you can make cleaning the latrines funny or you can yeah. make a joke out of it, you can do something. And all of a sudden, it's, yep. it's not quite as bad as you cleaning them by yourself. Yeah. And it, I think, yeah. It so true. Sense. And it's funny because... Um, you know, there's something to be said for working in the service industry and doing your time and, and, and all these different little um, aspects of it. Being being the call service person, being the being the bellman, being the whatever. Like I, I've lived a lot of little different lives right, as right. a youngster, and, yeah. and each of them, you know, they 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 all like serve their purpose being that trash man you know carrying sure. the freaking bags up the stairs you know I've, I've had both my sons work for a plumber yeah for the same reason yeah. yeah and it's just like getting your hands dirty shaping surfboards was one of the the most satisfying things that um you know i did you know it was a creative it's a thing real craft. and it yeah. was like this crafty thing and it's a horrible business right but from a from a enjoyment standpoint um, the business model is horrible. Like I wouldn't, <laughs> don't recommend it to anybody. But do it, do for, it for the craft. But, for, <laughs> but doing it for the craft, and you know, being a little DIY person, I love. My daughter blows me away because she just loves watching DIY and doing little projects, and she's always yeah. begging me, like, Dad, can we go to Michael's? I need a, I need a new pillowcase. <laughs> new I need some gun. stitches. I need a glue. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, all right. Um, and I love that. You know, I wish I was more like her. And so, I mean, getting back to your early question about, you know, what advice do you have? I would just say, you know, the the danger that today's generation have is you could easily be distracted and taken off course because there's more forces pulling at you than there was at our generation. Right. Trying to pull you off course and pull you away from your destiny, I would say. Yeah. And your legacy. Don't let them do that. Just try to be as... as, um, sort of Focus. aware yeah, yeah just be aware of of how much time you're doing like it, it's okay everybody needs to zone out for a while and tune out but just limit your time i think one of the best things on these new on the iphone now is yeah. like they'll tell you how much screen time you have at the end of the day oh wow so the new ios it's like it shows you know you were on social media for two hours <laughs> oh, or whatever i'm like holy i'm crap. not gonna i'm what? not gonna upgrade yeah <laughs> no, no. It, it's fascinating no like, I, and, I, I should and yeah. it's it's you know the beauty of analytics now of what you can track is scary. It's, it's um, unreal. You can track everything. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think, I think if you, if you, if you focus on that and focus on creating something, anything versus consuming, 
you're going to be so ahead of everybody else. Right. Gaining a skill and, and creating something that could just mean like instead of just droning, scrolling through Instagram, going on Skillshare and learning, you know, Adobe. Right. You know, like the creative suite and just gaining a new skill. Like, learn, tr- learn to mix some music. Learn turning to, it into yeah, productive. Doing something. Yeah. Because every one of those little things is going to serve you so well. I mean... I, and there's never been more tools to do it with. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable what you can do now. Right. Um, and, you know, the I'm really... I'm I'm somewhat encouraged, actually, by um, the, the generation that is in sort of that junior high age and below right now. Right. You know, it was, I tell my wife this, I go, you know, our older sons, when they were going through school here, and I don't know how it is around the rest of the country or in the rest of the world, but like there was a period where I was like, they're not getting any writing instruction. Yeah. Like, the thing that, and I go, I'm, I was kind of miffed. Like, I was like, this is, this is weird. Like, they're not teaching them. What are they actually learning? Yeah, what are they actually learning? Well, it was all, they were in the STEM thing real heavy. I mean, our kids yeah. were lucky. We had some really great Good writing st- st- teachers here. But right. it was an advanced course you had to get into, and, you know, not everybody got it. Right, you got to work for it. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's disappointing. I think everyone should have to learn to write, especially yeah. these days when email it's, is so important. And So, and, and that's one of the things, and I was kind of, I was pretty, like, uh, I, I was pretty cynical about the whole, um, what's the thing they call it now? The education part. It's the... Uh, STEM, the science thing? No, it's not STEM. It was... Oh, uh, the math one? The math... Uh... What was the term? I forget they call it, but it was like, oh gosh, it was right on the tip of my tongue. But it was, it's that whole new way of teaching math. Right. And, the, uh, and I was pretty cynical at first, but now I'm actually 100% 180 oh, cool. big fan. Cool. And because I'm watching my kids and the way they're doing it, it opens and the up way their they're learning. To it. Yeah. yeah, and um, and they're definitely learning um, to write uh, much better than you know, getting way more instruction than than the kids were eight years ago. Oh, that's the cool. first batch. Yeah. So I'm really encouraged because I'm looking at what they're producing yeah. in school. Um, whether it's just their little projects and stuff like that. That's encouraging. And I think like that is impressing me. Um, Common Core. That's what it was. Common Core. The Common yeah, Core yeah. thing. And it was very, you know, people were up in arms. different blah, when they blah, started. Blah, super yeah. different. Like, what the hell is this? And um, I was just like those people. But then when I watched and I'm looking at the results and I'm like, you know what? This is working. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion. And I'm sure there's probably other people who maybe aren't having the same experience. But I'm looking at it and I'm going man, these kids and what they're producing and what they're writing and what they're learning and the way they're talking to us at the dinner table about the world and problems and, you know, figuring things out, it's just mind-boggling. So I'm encouraged by that because I think that generation is going to do some fantastic things. Well, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, me too. I know. I hope I'm around. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, thank you for joining the Kick Aspirational podcast. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Yeah, I will let you know as soon as I get this thing off the ground and uh, I'll have you on. Awesome. That'll be a lot of fun. We'll continue the conversation. Yeah, I'm keeping it under wraps till now. But yeah, you'll be be in the first five episodes. (laughs) I'd love it. I can't wait. This is the Kick Aspirational podcast. Uh, This is interactive. This is not a spectator sport as Chris talked about today. I'd love your feedback, your questions. And, um, you know... 
uh, above all else, be, be kick aspirational. <laughs>